A legend is sung of when England was young And knights were brave and bold The good king had died And no one could decide Who was rightful heir to the throne It seemed that the land would be torn by war Or saved by a miracle alone And that miracle appeared In London town The sword in the stone And below the hilt in letters of gold were written these words Whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise king Though they tried for the sword with all their might No knight in all the land Could draw the wondrous blade from its resting place Its secret they could not understand The one who was meant to rule the land And worthy of the throne He will seek the sword with a humble heart And not for himself Welcome, everybody. Uh, we tried to do this live, but since my internet wasn't working, we're just going to do a pre-recorded. So thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, I am your Beecher Preacher. My name is Marty Leeds, Brother Marty Leeds, and you are listening to the Gnostic Church and Academy of Lord Jesus Christ. We stream every Sunday at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time if my internet's working. If not, then you get things like this. So anyway, thank you all for being here today. Um, if you want to support the good work that we do, stop on over to GnosticAcademy.org. We've got a, a long one for you today, and I hope you guys stick around because this is going to be jam-packed. We are going to do a scene-by-scene -scene deconstruction of Walt Disney's The Sword in the Stone movie, which is a favorite of many people, um, and we're going to look at it alchemically. We're basically going to, going to you know pick apart all of the esoteric um, information around it. So, so before we do that, though, let's start. Let's do a prayer. Ginger, why don't you lay down? There you go. May God grant us the wisdom to discover right, the will to choose it, and the strength to make it endure. Amen. Okay, 
So let's launch into it. Yes, we're going to do, uh, this is episode 56, the Sunday service, the alchemy of Disney's The Sword and the Stone. So the first thing I want to say is that we're not going to be making any sort of like uh, moral claims or anything like that about Walt Disney. That's not what we're going to do today. We're not going to be like, this proves that he was a Mason and an Illuminati or anything like that. That's not what we're doing. What we are going to do today is focus on the fact and show that Walt Disney was very much steeped in the occult and esoterica, that sort of thing. Um, many people know of the Walt Disney's 33 Club, and so people assume that he was a Mason as far as I know. He wasn't a mason people use 33 that are not masons like myself my name marty leads 33 for years and no i'm not a mason so we're not going to make any moral claims about uh walt disney today we're just going to look at the um all the occult stuff all the hidden stuff uh alchemical stuff within sword in the stone so um and this is this actually comes from bill burr this is pretty funny you know what the owner of the clippers you know what his his big crime was he, he lived too long if he died around 1969, 1970, nobody would have noticed. Dude, look at Walt Disney. Walt Disney was a known anti-Semite. But he died in the early 70s. Nobody gives a shit. Look at him. He's got a castle, a bunch of mice running around. Nobody cares. So Walt Disney was a known anti-Semite. So, you know. Take that for what it is. But anyway, we're not going to be making any uh, moral claims, uh, whether good or bad today, uh, about Walt Disney. What we are going to do is look at Sword in the Stone. And the Sword in the Stone is based off, of course, the Arthurian legends of King Arthur. And, uh, you know, it was Knights of the Round Table in Camelot. You guys know this is a very famous story, of course. And what we're going to see is that this story, just like all of the, uh, you know, pretty much everything that we sort of deconstruct on uh, at this church and in this academy and stuff like that, we see the same sorts of ideas, themes, elements that play out. It doesn't matter if we talk about Norse stuff, if we're talking about Christianity, we go to the Mayan stuff. We're going to see the exact same things. A lot of the stuff that we cover Nearly all the stuff that we cover in on this channel in this church, we're going to see, you know, replete throughout um, the the tale of King Arthur. So King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, and of course, all of you people uh, here that know that we do a little bit of geometry, of course, round and table. What's a table? It's a square. Round is, of course, a circle. So we're going to be dealing with circle and square today a little bit. A lot of the themes you'll find in the Arthurian legends are are right in line with the ones that you find within Christ. Um, in fact. You you see uh, this uh, the Knights of the Round Table. The number varies. It's up to like sixteen hundred or one hundred and fifty. But a lot of times you'll find that there are twelve knights, twelve or twenty four knights, and that is a lot like, of course, Jesus and his disciples. Twelve disciples of uh, we'll, we'll say the squared circle over there, Jesus Christ. Uh, but twelve knights of the Round Table, and so you know this similar theme of disciples, knights, that sort of thing. Um, you, uh, this is, th then there's, of course, the question whether the, you know, this was a real story at all. Was he actually a real king? Who was King Arthur? That sort of thing. Is K King Arthur and his knights, is it a true story? Some people do believe that King Arthur could have been a real person, but, you know, despite the occasional news story and archaeological discovery, there's no, there's no evidence at all. This is, a, this is, as far as we know, this is more folklore, legend, tale, that sort of thing. Um, the, the round table, the Knights of the Round Table, Arthur even had somebody that betrayed him. Mordred is his name, right? Just like, just like Judas. Um, the same sort of themes, once again, um, 12 disciples and knights, that sort of thing. Of course, uh, the King Arthur is the, is the search for the Holy Blood, the Holy Grail, right? The Holy Grail. Of course, we're all, we all have the Holy Blood. We're all children of God, so we know that. But the search for the Holy Grail, the cup of immortality of, you know, uh, that sort of thing. The cup from which Jesus drank at the Last Supper, the, the, you know, the classic legend about finding the Holy Grail. We talk about the fact that the Holy Grail is right in front of you. The Holy Grail, the magical cup from which Jesus drank from his own two sacred hands. He drank 
the he he ne- he kneeled down by the river dipped his hands in the water and Jesus drank from his own hands that was the magical sacred cup in which Jesus drank cuz what what better is than Jesus's hands so Jesus didn't need some gold plated chalice from the roman empire right in order to drink his fluids no he knelt down next to the next to the river dipped his own two hands in that river this is the holy grail it's right in front of you of course you are the vessel you are the cup in which immortality exists in other words so um, but we're not going to talk too much about the Holy Grail today. Another interesting thing about the Arthurian legends is we talked about this just a few live streams ago about apostolic succession. The idea that a lot of these churches will claim that they have apostolic succession. Essentially what this is, is, well, it says here, apostolic succession is the method whereby the ministry of the Christian church is held to be derived from the apostles by a continuous succession, a line of bishops and all this, all the way down to today. There's a bunch of churches that claim that we are of the lineage of the, the bishops and the, of, of, you know, the first church that Christ set up 2,000 years ago. We're from that. And a bunch of churches, uh, you know, believe this. Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, Church of the East, Oriental Orthodox, Catholic, Lutheran, LDS, that sort of thing. A bunch of these churches believe this sort of thing. Well, of that, you know, oh, we, Christ was here 2,000 years ago and we're the line, a succession all the way down till today. The Arthurian legends have the same thing. Ever since the Renaissance, the question has been debated with veracity. During the reign of the Tudors, the Tudors and um, their monarchy, King Arthur's existence was defended strongly because the Tudors traced their lineage all the way back to King Arthur himself. So there were people, in other words, the King Arthur story has apostolic succession, the claim of apostolic succession. So the same thing that's happening with people today with Christ happened with the Arthurian legend. Legends. Isn't it crazy? Also, messianic return. Once again, nobleman, knight, becomes a king, is adored throughout the land, that sort of thing. This King Arthur's messianic return is a mythological motif in the legend of King Arthur, which claims that he will one day return in the role of Messiah to save his people. (laughs) Same sort of thing, right? So, um, you know... uh, disciples you know that's the return the messiah he's the king and you know legends the apostolic succession the whole bit right of course he wrote a white uh, this stallion of course that sort of thing um king arthur was also part known as one of the nine worthies now you guys this this should ring your guys's bell if you've been following along at the gnostic church and academy of lord jesus christ and been doing your due diligence in the study of geometry and numbers which you should have which you should be king arthur was known as one of the nine worthies He's one of the nine worthies. The nine worthies are nine historical, scriptural, and legendary men of distinction who personify the ideals of chivalry established in the Middle Ages, whose lives were deemed a valuable study for aspirants to chivalric status. So the nine worthies, the princes, worthies. What does this sound like? You guys, we've, we've covered this again and again and again. This is, this is the numbers. This is all a, a mythological, you know, um, a, a, a grand allegory for the number line, for the principles of number, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You add zero, and what do you have? The base ten system. This is so the nine worthies representative of the num- the number line. This is um, this is what Kabbalah is. This is Kabbalah. Most people have the, their mind all over the place. What Kabbalah is? It's just it's literally number symbolism. It's recognizing that numbers are supernatural. They're metaphysical. They have inherent qualities and attributes. They're ordered. They're axiomatic. They're universal. They, they're, emanation, they, they're emanations of God. They're divine principles of design. There's a numeric alphabet that we're given. Zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. This kind of thing. They're incorruptible, you know? That sort of thing. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's our base 10 system. That's what it's a reference to. This is the Egypt nine worthies that King Arthur was part of. This is the Egyptian Ennead. Greeks celebrated the same thing. Nine gods. What do they represent? The numbers. 
distinctly, directly. How about the nine worlds on the Yagrasil tree of the Norse? Same sort of thing. Nine worlds that, that were around the central tree of the world. Um, the center of the cosmos is the trunk of the mighty, sprawling world Yagrasil, right? Its branches and roots hold the nine worlds. And of course, there's Alfheim and Mesbelheim and Niflheim and Hel and etc. Misgard and Asgard and all that sort of stuff. So nine worlds. Nine worlds. So nine worthies. Uh, you also have the Christian angelic hierarchy, which is what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine angels of the Christian angelic hierarchy. Egyptian, Norse, Christian, and then you go to the King Arthur legends. And what do you have? The exact same ideas and principles that we talk about continuously on this, on this, uh, on this channel. Okay, so that's just a little foundation of the King Arthur. We're not going to get into that, um, you know, the, the legend too much. What we're going to do is focus on the movie, of course. And the movie is The Sword and the Stone, as, as you guys know. This is, of course, a favorite for so many people. It's one of my favorite movies. It literally, especially after doing this uh, video, it's, it's, uh, it's just... Fell in love with it again, is all I, all I gotta say. So, great movie, great movie. Um, of course, we know the intro scene is like, When England was young, da -da 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 -da. that was a great song. And so, it basically tells this tale about, like, ah, there was the sword and the stone, and all these warriors tried to, you know, pull it, and no one could pull it, and then people forgot about it for all these years, right? And then the vines grew up on it, and the dust settled on the sword, and all this other stuff. And then the sword says this, Whoso pulleth out the sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise king, born of England right? And so the legend is like, hey man, you pull that sword from that stone and you will become king. Divinely, right? It's, you know, divinely inspired kind of thing, as we know. Okay, so this gets into the first scene. The first scene we see Marvin, Merlin, as he, uh, Merlin the wizard, right? And the first scene we see, we, you know, pans in and it's Merlin and, you know, this guy is a wizard, right? He's a legitimate wizard, and he's in the wilderness right now, and he's got a chain, pay attention, he's got a chain, and he's pulling this water up from the bottom of a well. So this chain is chained all the way to the bottom of the well, and at the bottom there, he even gets his, you know, once he gets the water up, he gets his foot hooked on, and he's like, ah, blasted chain, that sort of thing. Now, mind you, he's bitching about the fact that he's like, ah, I can't pull this water up. He's a wizard, dude. He could just make the water, right, dip down and just bring the thing up. Like, later on, he makes dishes, like, wash themselves and, like, puts a whole room in, in, a, in a little satchel, that sort of thing, right? But here we are. The first scene we see is th this wizard, and he's, he's bitching about the fact that he's trying to carry this water up, um, right? And which basically is what? That even wizards, even the, even the most intelligent, occult, you know, minds of the world are still subjected to God's laws in this sense, right? The chain is very important. The chain is very, very important. It's a theme throughout this, as this uh, film, as you'll see. And the chain is, is recognized, well, number one, he says this, the chain of the ages, right? Ah, dark age indeed. Age of inconvenience. No plumbing, no electricity, no nothing. Oh, hang it all, hang it all. Oh, now what, now what? Leave it off, leave off. So the chain's got him. He's like, leave off. Get off here, chain. Get me away from you. And of course, once again, he's got he's got that chain around his foot there, right? He's like, oh, you fiendish chain, you. Everything complicated. One big mid-evil mess. Now, the important point you need to know is what the chain is actually referencing to. You're chained in two ways, right? You, or you, you, you can chain yourself in two ways. Either you can chain yourself to the material world, the corruptible, right? Or you can chain yourself to heaven, okay? This is what religion means. Religion means a state of life bound by monastic vows, respect for what is sacred, reverence for the gods, etc., etc. But religion comes from religare, religio, um, which basically means uh, re, which means to do again. And um, religare means to bind fast, 
a bond between humans and God. So this is a bind. This is a bond. This is a chain. This is a link. This is what religion means. We want to link ourselves back to God. We want to link ourselves to the higher orders. So you can be chained either, you know, one of two ways. Chain yourself to the Almighty or you can chain yourself to the, the earth, if you will, the material world, metaphysical and physical, if you will. So, so this is what the chain is. So this is what uh, you'll see throughout the, the film. There's a, a reference to the chain. And of course, the ages of the world is a notion that the world or the cosmos is a living thing. It is. Uh, undergoes stages of development similar to those of the human individual. individual. Um, and then they say it's a more poetic conceit, uh, conceit. But basically, it's this idea that, you know, just like the seasonal year, that every, you know, spring is different than summer and summer is different than fall and fall is different than winter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's ages that the earth goes through and that, you know, those periods are different. So there was a dark age and now we're in even a darker age as far as I can tell. So anyway, and you can see that later on, the, you know, he comes, Marvin, Merlin comes blazing back from Bermuda, right? This is towards the end of the movie. And he's like, ah, the new age is crap. Is basically what he says. It's one big mess. So he's calling the medieval world a mess, but then he comes back and he's like, oh my God, it's even worse now kind of thing, right? That's what he's alluding to. So, so the intro scene, right, after we, we meet Merlin is, of course, uh, Wart, as we'll see his name, and then Kay, his brother, okay? And this is a very Cain, this is a very Cain and Abel scenario, as we'll see, right? Essentially warring brothers, kind of that, that sort of thing. Jacob and Esau, Cain and Abel kind of thing, right? And so, and Kay was out hunting and he didn't even ask Arthur to come along. And he's like, and you know, he's like, I didn't even ask you to come along, right? And then, of course... Arthur falls from that branch and then, you know, hits Kay and Kay, the arrow goes shooting off. And he's like, ah, you clumsy fool, you idiot, that kind of thing. You wart, you, you know, in insignificant little peon. That's what he's saying. His name is Arthur. And we all, we all know that Arthur is going to become king of freaking England. But what is he right now? He's a wart. That's what he is. They call him Wart. What is a Wart? Well, you guys know what a Wart is. I didn't, I didn't need to put the picture in there, but I did anyway. So from he goes from Wart to King of England. A Wart is a small, hard, benign growth in the skin caused by a virus, allegedly. Um, so yeah, so he's a Wart. So what is what is happening? You start out, he's a clumsy fool. He's getting in the way. Nobody likes him. He's a Wart. He's a peon. He's insignificant. What you're watching is um, Wart, Arthur's, alchemical process. That's what we're watching. We're going to watch turning lead into gold. We're going to go from the wart to the what? King of England. We're going to go from lead to gold, to the incorruptible, right? This is what is understood in uh, Masonic doctrine as turning the rough ashlar to the perfect ashlar. The rough ashlar is the, you know, the rough crude stone. And then you chip all the crap away. And what do you get? You get the perfect stone inside. And that's the perfect ashlar. So the rough ashlar to the perfect ashlar. And as we're going to see, um, this will come back to, what is it? It's the cube. It's a cube. That's what the perfect ashlar stone is. And of course, this is the, uh, the sword in the stone. So we'll get back to that. Okay, we're going to go through this stuff pretty quick just today because there's a lot. All right, into the wilderness. That's where he goes. So the arrow goes flying. You know, Arthur gets, you know, falls onto Kay and the arrow goes flying. And he's like, well, I'll go in and get it. I'm not scared of the wilderness. He's like, oh, you're going to go into there? Right, this dark, really scary place. Well, where is he going, right? Well, we already know in our studies what the wilderness is. This is a sly reference to the fact that guess what? This is the, the stars above, the canopy of the stars above. What is the wilderness? This is a place uninhabited by human beings. That's what a wilderness is. When we take this into its poetic you know, sensibility there, what do we say that the wilderness is? That's the canopy of the stars above. That's the place where no man goes and no man lives, is uninhabited. Arthur right now, he's going to go into that dark place, the unknown, the hell, 
the you know the sheol if you will what's he doing what's he doing he's arthur is taking his first steps on the hero journey he's starting you know he's he's the fool He's the, he goes from fool to the world in the tarot cards, right? He's the fool doesn't know anything. He's stumbling along, you know, walking down the mountain, whatever. Next thing you know, he's heading into the wilderness, the darkness, the place that oh, even this warrior K won't go, right? And he has no problem. He's like, I'll go. I'm not scared. I'll go get the arrow for you, K. Okay? And of course, the first thing he does is he takes a trip. As soon as he gets into the wilderness, he takes a trip. He trips and he falls. Okay? So we just talked about the fact that we are, this is uh, subtle references as they always are to the constellations in the sky, okay? So when we look at the wilderness, we're going to see that, oh, well, Arthur, these characters must have, in this sense, these characters are related to constellations. Well, Arthur's name is a bear. It's a masculine proper name, the medieval Latin Arthurus, Arturus, usually said to be from Welsh Arth, bear, right? Cognate with Greek Arctos, Latin Ursus, see Arctic. So it's the, of course, the Arctic would be the, in on the Earth would be the North. What's in the North, you know, near the North Pole, those circumpolar constellations? What is it? Well, it's Ursa, Ursa Major, Ursa, of course, the big bear. And that big bear, that big dipper, the big ladle, that points to the pole star. And we'll get back into this, okay? So Arthur, we see the Arthur, he's the bear. It's a reference to the bear. So right away, we have a reference to a constellation. Okay. Now he goes into the wilderness. He takes that trip. He's on the hero's journey and he takes a trip, goes into the darkness, goes into the wilderness. And what's the first thing that he meets? He meets a wolf in the wilderness, right? He meets a crazy lupus wolf. Now, every time Arthur gets away gets away from this wolf, like Arthur's not a, not a warrior in this sense. He's not trained to be able to like fight off things in the dark and stuff like that. But Arthur, because he is on his hero's journey, he's got the divine with him. The divine is carrying him along is what's happening. Every time Arthur gets away from this evil wolf, it's by clumsy, goofy, and unplanned ways. He's walking along. He grabs the tree. The tree goes, you know, smacks the wolf in the face. He goes to step on the branch and the branch falls in, in his mouth. It's because Arthur right now, in his quest, he is guided by fate, destiny. He is guided by the higher realms. He is guided by God. Lupus is the constellation, Lupus is a wolf. So this wolf he meets in the in the wilderness, this is the Lupus. So the constellation Lupus now is a wolf. Now it's really important because this wolf is right by two extremely important constellations. Extremely important constellations, right? And that's Norma and Circanus. Now, mind you, I didn't I didn't put this in the slide, but he's with K, right? The the constellation that's right by Scorpius is Sagittarius, which is the archer. And what was what was K doing? He was in the wilderness and he was, you know, shot the arrow into the, into the wilderness, into the darkness, right by that constellation. It's hard to see there, but right by that constellation, right across from is the wolf. Right by wolf are circled there. It's Norma and Circanus. Okay. This is why this is, this will be important. Okay. Lupus, the wolf, Norma and Circanus that are circled right there. What are Norma and, Norma and Circanus? Norma and Circanus are the square and the compasses. It's two constellations represented by the square, which is the Norma. And that's a reference to a carpenter and circanus, which is a reference to, of course, circles. And that's your compasses. So, <laughs> so where, what are we, you know, once again, let me just say this again. There's lupus, there's your wolf. And then right by lupus is the norma and circanus. Norma and circanus is the compasses and square. And what do the compasses and square make? The compasses and square make the circle and the table. It makes the round table, the circle and the square, the round table, the circle, round table comes from tabla which is um, square, like a tablet, like it's like your you know, drawing tablet, that sort of thing. This is, of course, a reference to, as we know, our cosmology. 
Compasses represents heaven going up. Square represents earth going down. This is the, of course, and this is our cosmology. So the circle and the square represent heaven and earth. Earth is square, heaven is compass. So when, you know, this this is a subtle reference to, oh, Norman Circanus, what does a square make? Square, circle, circle, right? A circanus, circle. This is a reference to our cosmology. <clears throat> Upstairs is the circular heavens. It's metaphysical. It's unknown. It's incorruptible. It's incorporeal. It's celestial. It's um, spiritual. It's the spiritual realms. It's beyond the physical. Down here is the physical. It's the known. It's corruptible. It's the corporeal. It's the terrestrial material. It's the matter. Okay. What we want to do is we want to get have heaven within our earth, earthen vessels, and we want to we want to uh, take that heaven, that spirit, and remove it. You know, liberate ourselves from that earthly vessel and get up to the heavenly worlds. Okay. And so that's what we're going to see is happening with Arthur here. So this is um, the basics of your cosmology, and this is Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and this is a reference to literally sacred geometry in the beginning god created the circle and the square okay in the beginning god so this is the squared circle the round table right now notice this circle and the square these quote-unquote opposites came from what one place god god a singular being all the opposites all the differentiations all the multiplicities of the entire universe all come back to what a oneness of god in the beginning a singular being created two different things the circle and the square this idea is found all over the world i'm going to go over this quick because this is a review for a lot of people but of course where do we find this this idea of the round table the circle in the square we find it in the freemasonic square and compasses we'll get back to that later this is uh, the middle there that's nuan fu chi this is the mother father god goddess of uh, um, of China. Um, right there is the Buddha stupa. Square base, round circular heaven. Circle and square, circle and square. Heaven and earth. Um, this is a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, basically layouts for uh, cathedrals all across the world. And what do you see is the main theme. If you look at the center, it's a circle and a square. It's the combination of heaven and earth. It's the squared circle. Um, this is, of course, the Da Vinci, uh, the Vitruvian man on the left there. What is that? That's the circle and the square. That's the round table. Look at Pythagoras on the right there. What has he got there? He's got the compasses and square. Okay, what does that mean? It's a reference to our cosmology. How about on the left there, what do you have? Those are the mandalas. You see mandalas all over the world and all sorts of isms and Taoism and Buddhism and Hinduism, all those isms, right? What do you see within the square, or excuse me, the, the mandala? Mandala is the circle and the square. It's the round table. Uh, there's rebus, there's alchemy on the right there, of course. Then what do you have? Of course, he's holding the circanus and the, the circanus and the norma. He's holding the compasses in the square. He's got the round table, rebus does. In both of his hands and as you see we'll get back to this that's two two heads and one body this is squaring the circle this is the round table in alchemy of course you see this all over the central theme is the circle and the square because it represents the heaven and the earth okay now just so you guys know there's multiple we're not going to get into any math today but as far as that's concerned but just so you guys know there's multiple ways of squaring the circle what uh, that's which is a mathematical idea um mystical mathematical art i'm just going to go over this quick Squaring the circle is has long been revered as the ancient geometrical problem. The problem arose with the need to find the area of a circle. The solution was to find a formula or geometric construction that would enable someone to draw a square with an area that exactly corresponded to the area of a particular cir circle. This difficulty, the difficulty of this problem has been coined in the alchemical lore as squaring the circle, a euphemism for something that was almost impossible and yet 
mystical Stephen Skinner from Sacred Geometry says. So there's this idea that between the circle and the square, you want to find the area of one and the area of another and make them equal. Well, you can't do this. Ultimately, because of what? As you guys know, if you've been following along, the infinitude and transcendental nature of pi because you always have to approximate the area of that circle because you always have to approximate pi. We're not gonna get into any of that math today, I'm just gonna mention it because one of the main things that these, all of this is talking about here is actually the mathematical art of what is known as squaring the circle. This is all a reference to squaring the circle and including Genesis 1-1, okay? So all of these things are referencing this mathematical, mystical mathematical art of finding an area that, of a circle and a square that are equal. That's essentially it. And what this really does is launches you into cosmology and sacred geometry and all sorts of all sorts of goodies. Um, just so you guys know, um, um, Carl Jung said this, squaring the circle is a stage on the way to the unconscious, a point of transition leading to a goal, yet a uh, goal lying as yet unformulated beyond it. It is one of those paths to the center. So, um, so uh, by the way, the Great Pyramid of Giza squares the circle. So this massive, you know, feat of architecture that people are just like, how do they do it? What, are they, what is it? How do they build it? We do know for a, for a fact, a geometric fact, that it is a two-dimensional, in two dimensions, it's a representation of what we are talking about here. Squaring the circle. <clears throat> Rounding the table, right? Rounding the table. Okay, so now squaring the circle has been a key idea within, well, number one, it's found within the name of Jesus Christ. We're not even going to talk about that today. I wrote about that in the book. If you'd like to check that out, GnosticAcademy.org, commercial over. A, the idea of squaring the circle is a central theme in some of the greatest, uh, at least as far as I'm concerned, some of the greatest pieces of literature that we have from history, right? Number one, Dante's Paradiso says in the 33rd canto, Illuminati confirmed, the 33rd canto of Dante's Paradiso says this, as the geometry specialist who sets himself to square the circle, to round the table, and who cannot find for all his thought the principle he needs. Then this person goes on to say, for Dante, of course, um, Dante is like a geometer wholly dedicated to squaring the circle. Dante's Inferno, right? The Paradiso. Um, this you, let's, let's uh, oh, this one in the... Um, in the, in the vision quest of the Ogallala Sioux, the young man desiring purification and vision from the deity named Wakantanka would go to a high place, this person would, and would there orient a spot of ground by creating a squared circle, a mandala configuration, and would sleep with his head at the center pole, where he would hope to receive in dreams and visions what would be value to him. Okay, so the Ogallala Sioux, we have it in Dante's Paradiso. Of course, you found it all around the world. Alchemy, the, you know, the, the, basically the, the, the blueprints and geometry of, of the blueprints of the cathedrals and all this sort of stuff. James Joyce's Ulysses. James Joyce's Ulysses. The quadrature of the circle is one of the great problems posed by the ancient Greeks. This squaring of the circle was also an issue of particular interest to Leopold Bloom, the central character in James Joyce's novels, Ulysses, whom Irish people celebrate today. There's a, there's a, every year they celebrate like James Joyce Day or whatever it is. And they celebrate this character, Leopold Bloom. His sole goal, well not his sole goal, but one of his feats in Ulysses was to try to square the circle. So, so all of these things, when we talk about the round table, and so where did this start from? Once again, lupus that wolf is right by what? The circle and the square. The compass is in the square. And Arthur is what? He's of the round table. Okay. 
So now that we got that, let's move on. So now we see Merlin, and he's he sees um, he sees Arthur coming. He's like, ah, fate will direct him to me. And basically, what is he doing? He's doing remote viewing right now. That's what he's doing. Like he's seeing, like you know, a mile away or whatever he is. Fate will direct Arthur to me, so that I, in turn, may guide him to his rightful place in the world. Ha huh, ha. Huh. And 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 this is what Archimedes' owl says, and we'll get to Archimedes in a second. Ah, and you you say he will arrive in a half hour? Ha! Well, we'll just see, and you will, you will, Archimedes. You'll see. I'm not guessing, Archimedes. I know where he is. Less than a mile from here, just beyond the forest and right on schedule. So he's, in this sense, he is a remote viewer. Now, when, when, we'll get to this in just a second, but when Arthur comes in, Merlin starts talking about himself. He's like, I am a prognosticator. I am a soothsayer, right? What is a soothsayer? It's a person supposed to be able to foresee the future. A prognosticator is basically the same sort of thing. A person who foretells or prophesies a future event. Now, what is he? What is basically Merlin saying? Now we already know we're dealing with astrology. We've got Lupus and the Wolf and Norman and Circanus, and we've got Arthur the Bear, right? Merlin is an astrologer, right? I, in this sense, I'm a prognosticator too. I'm going to say, guess what? The sun will rise over there tomorrow around seven o'clock. It's like I'm br- I'm so brilliant. I can see into the future. No, what does an astrologer do? Basically, just maps and tracks God's patterns. And so if he says, ah, oh, the Sirius is going to rise there tomorrow. You can actually prophesize that. Anybody can. So he's saying, he, this is what he's saying. It's, it's, it's subtleties that he's saying. He's an astrologer. That's what he is. That's what, that's what alchemy is all about too. And, and not all about, but you know, huge part of, of course, alchemy is astrology. Anyway, Merlin and his alchemical lab. This is what you see. When Merlin comes back before Arthur gets there, this is his alchemical, just look at it. <laughs> right? I mean, it's clearly an alchemical lab. He's got his, like, freaking, you know, I don't need to go into it, right? He's distilling stuff and blah, 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 blah. Okay. So before Arthur shows up now, we've got the owl. Archimedes the owl, right? And there's a who, who, what, 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 that kind of thing, right? Now, the owl is long been known as a symbol of wisdom, okay? Um, why is the owl a symbol of wisdom? Well, number one, they can see at night. So they can see through the darkness, owls can. Owls also have independent eyes. This eye can go like this, and this eye can go like this, right? It hunts at night, right? It's um, it's he- which is like apex predator kind of thing. It's like peak predator kind of stuff. Its head turns two hundred and seventy degrees, right? It can see three hundred and sixty degrees though. Its head, like it's, if it starts here, like it can go and go like two hundred and seventy degrees. But because its eyes turn independently, it can see three hundred and sixty degrees at night. So it's a symbol, of course, of, of wisdom because of this, right? Um, it's also a symbol of death, rebirth. There's lots of things that the owl is sim- symbolic of, but we all know it's symbolic of, of course, wisdom. And of course, what does Merlin have? He has an owl. His owl, his name is Archimedes. There is a uh, illustration of Archimedes. And what does Archimedes have right in front of him? The Norma and the Circanus, the compasses and the square. He's got a round table in front of him. That's what he's got. That's what he's got. Okay. Archimedes... Why is this important? Well, if you've been following along at the Gnostic Church and Academy of Lord Jesus Christ, you know that we deal with pi a whole lot, the mathematical constant of pi. Once again, it's one of the reasons you can't square the circle, can't get into that, but Archimedes was an ancient Greek mathematician. Uh, Archimedes of Syracuse is considered the greatest mathematician of the ancient world, is credited with doing the first calculation of pi. So, just saying, right? So why did they call this owl Archimedes. 
This guy was famous. And what is he holding right there? He's got a compass, by the way. This guy was famous for what? Figuring out pi. So that'll be that'll come back to us in just a second. The owl right there, as he's talking, he's hoot hooting to Merlin, right? He's in front of a case that has butterflies. What is a butterfly? Right? It goes from this wormy, slimy, wart-like thing to what? This glorious, beautiful creature with, you know, it's got like, you know, iridescent colors and all this other stuff, right? And this beautiful thing. It's this absolute, it's it's like the, it's God's like perfect natural symbol of the alchemical transformation, right? It goes from the caterpillar, the wormy, slimy thing to this beautiful thing, right? And this beautiful butterfly. So the owl, the symbol of wisdom is standing right in front of that. Right, which are all symbols of which they're, yeah, there's all, I think there's nine there too. Um, nine, you know, butterflies there. The symbol of regeneration, reformation, transformation, right? Right there is what? The, the, the skull, right? It's the skull. What's the skull? Of course, this is where, right? This is where Golgotha, we've talked about this again and again and again. We'll get back to it here in just a second. Um, right now, actually, but the skull, this is Calgary, Golgotha. You got two eyes. Pay attention. You got two eyes. You got two ears, you got two nostrils, and you got one mouth. So you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You got seven things to take in the world, to smell it, to see it, to hear it, to taste it, that sort of thing, right? Seven on on the skull. The skull has 22 bones, save for the mandible. Just, just the skull alone, just what you see there. There's no mandible there, right? So mandible is this part of the jaw. 22 divided by seven is 3.142. It's a common... Widely um, used abbreviation and approximation of pi. Seven holes, if you will, orifices, 22 bones, 22 divided by seven is pi. So a single shot there is actually a lot going on, a lot of symbolism happening. When Arthur comes in to meet Merlin, he goes up, he's, he finds the arrow and he goes up on a tree and he goes to grab the arrow and he falls in to, um, to Merlin's little hut there, right? And Merlin's like, oh, I know where he's going to be. He's going to fall right here. And he puts this, you know, the stool in front of him. And look at the stool. It's got a circle and a triangle there, of course, right? And so he's going to fall through the roof. Now, we've talked about the roof before plenty of times, right? What is the roof representative? Of course, this is the guy the, Paul, the guy had palsy that Jesus healed, right? One of the miracles that Jesus performed. They let this guy down in Capernaum. In Capernaum, the cap here, Capernaum. The nom, the place for repentance and sorrow, that sort of thing. Capernaum through the roof. They let this guy down, right? That's what he did. So he came in through the roof. What is the roof? It's your head. It's your head. It's your Aries. So Arthur, and, and Merlin knew it. He's like, oh, he's going to be coming through the roof. Because where does, where does the, where does the, you know, when it comes on high, where does the revelation happen? It's like, oh, that sort of thing. Okay? So he came in through the roof. And we'll see that again when we deal with Madame Mim. Now, the wizard, as he's like, I am the greatest wizard of all time, right? As he's pouring coffee into his beard, which is basically saying what? That even though this guy is, you know, esoterically brilliant and he's a wizard and he's a magician and he's a prognosticator and a soothsayer and an astrologer and he can remote view, he's still a flawed being. He's still subjected to the laws of nature. He still can, that sort of thing. He's still under God's commandment. It doesn't matter what he says, you know, that sort of thing. He's still a flawed being. That's why the chain got him in the beginning. That's why he's pouring coffee in his freaking, you know, beard or tea or whatever it is, right? And he knew the exact place that Merlin was going to come. He came in through the roof. Now, when he says this, right, actually, as he falls through the roof, he sits down. And of course, what's behind him? He's got the skull, right? So we're talking about the head. He says, oh, 
He's like, Arthur's like, oh, you can see everything before it happens? He's like, yes, everything. And Archimedes is like, uh-uh, everything, Merlin? He's like, oh, well, uh, not everything. I, I admit, I didn't know whom to expect to, for tea. But as you can see, I figured the exact place. You're very welcome, sir. Yes. Well, never mind. He came in through the roof, the head, the Aries, the lamb. He knew exactly where he was going to come. As he's saying this, right, he bops him on the head with his stick. And right behind him is what? A skull. <laughs> so then he says this. He's like, hey, uh, Mer, uh, you know, uh, Wart, have you had any schooling? Oh, yes, sir. I'm training to be a squire. I'm learning the rules of combat and swordmanship and jousting and horsemanship. And then he's like, oh, yes, yes, yes. That's very good. No, 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 no. I mean a real education. What's the first thing he says? Mathematics. Mathematics. First thing he says. History, biology, natural science, English, Latin, French. Then, the great scene that we all know, that he basically gets the whole, his whole place. He's like, all right, I'm going to pack you up. I'm going to take, you know, Merlin's going to take Arthur on this big journey. And he's going to pack up the whole house. And he's like, oh, books are always first, you know. Books are always first, you know. And then he says his alakajam, you know, whatever, prestidigitonium, whatever he says, right? And then all of a sudden, as you know, the, everything in the whole place starts dancing and goes into his little satchel. The first scene you see, though, is basically what? This, this math book open up, and what's the thing on the right? It's the Vesca Pisces. <laughs> it's the Pisces. They're, 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 I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's one expression of it. It's Jesus fish. We've talked about that quite a bit. So now what happens, right? Hickadis, figadis, zumba, zing. I want your attention, everything. Hockety, pockety, wockety, whack. Abra, abra, dabra, neck. Shrink in size, very small. We've got to save enough room for all. Hickadis, figadis, mickadis, mum. Prestidigitonium. Alakafez, balakazes, malakamez, meropetes. Hockety, pockety, wockety. <laughs> right? He gets everything to, you know, magically to shrink in size and go into his little satchel, right? And what this is, to me, this is like a, a, a subtle reference to, you know, the idea that um, the uh, as above, so below, microcosm, macrocosm, the small and the large, the large and the small kind of thing. A very fractal idea, okay? So, <laughs> so great. Anyway, so, and then he's like, then he leaves and he's like, now develop your brain, knowledge, wisdom. There's the real power, higher learning. Now develop your brain, knowledge, wisdom. There's the real power. So now he goes, we're going to see. Now, of course, they go on their journey. And as we'll see, the, the, the wolf goes after him again, right? And so as they go, they're, you know, Merlin's, or Merlin's leading the way. And then Arthur's following him. And Merlin walks all the way up this hill. He goes all the way up this monster hill and he gets to the very top. And this is what he says. As he's going up there, he says, How do you ever expect to amount to anything without an education? I'd like to know. Even in these bungling, backward, medieval times, you've got to know where you're going, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yes, sir. Yes, of course. So you must plan for the future, boy. You've got to find a direction. And as he's saying this, he's lost. He's so, and you've now, by, by the by, what direction is this castle of yours? That's what Merlin's asking. Hey, by the way, we're up at the top of this hill. And I'm looking out, and he's looking the wrong way. He's, he goes, um, where is this castle of yours? What does Arthur say? I think it's north. I think it's north. What's the castle they're talking about? Who lives in a castle? A king and queen. Who's the king and queen in our sky? Cepheus and Cassiopeia. Cepheus is the king. Cassiopeia is the queen. 
they live on them. They live literally what what is construed um, uh, metaphysically or whatever, mystically in this sense, symbolically is the mountain in the north, the mountain in the north. This is him literally at the highest place. And he's like, where's this castle of yours? I think it's north. He says, what's in the, what's in the north? It's Polaris. There's a North star. What is this? This is considered the mount, the mountain. Sometimes there's a tree on the mountain. There's the Gagrasil tree again. There's, there's a mount, Mount Miru, Mount Olympus. There's tons of mountains in the, in the center, Mount Zion, that sort of thing. In the center of the earth, that kind of thing. Tons of motifs and ideas like that. Well, who, who is a castle on the mountain and it's in the north. Those are the constellations. They're the circumpolar constellations revolving around the North Star, the Pole Star. And what are they? It's the King and the Queen. It's Cepheus and Cassiopeia. Now, as they're running away, or as, they're, as, he's, as he's following Merlin, right? What happens? Well, there's lupus again. There's the wolf. And every time he tries to get him, ah, he just misses him, right? He goes to bite his ankle, misses it. Then he goes, he's going to bite his ankle again, and, you know, Arthur jumps. Then the, you know, the... The wolf falls down the hill and he gets, tra- you know, the you know, blah, 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 blah. You get it, right? And he, you know, outruns a boulder and then he gets to the top and he's like, oh, I'm so tired. Once again, what's happening? The same fate befalls Lupus Wolf because why? Because God's in charge. God knows that this little boy needs to be king and so he's going to part the waters in any way he can to make sure he is. Okay? So... Then all of a sudden, um, you know, they, he gets back from his long day and he's like, oh, and this is, uh, this is dad, this is sir, this is Arthur's dad. And he's in the castle and he's like, yo ho, the devil take it. No, the devil take it. Anyone's got better sense than to go off barging off in that infernal forest alone. Right? So, so he's, yo ho, the devil take it. He's, he mentions that, you know, the devil several different times. And then he also talks about the infernal forest. The infernal forest is the wilderness. So as we're going to see, he's referencing the devil that he's referencing is, is the constellation Draco, which we'll get back into that. But so, and then, so he's like, oh, devil, the devil take it. You had no business sense of barging off. You had no business letting him go, Kay. Right? This is what the pop is saying to Kay, uh, Arthur's brother. And what, is, what does Kay say? Look, Dad, am I, am I my brother's keeper? He's, it's a Cain and Abel story. Am I my brother's keeper? No, what, am I responsible for him? No. Look, Dad, it's not, I'm not the wart's keeper, Kay says. Kay is clearly shown to be, be you know, a total doofus. He does, has zero heart, doesn't care about anybody but himself. He's a complete idiot. You know, blah, 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 right? So, and then this is when Merlin comes in and meets the Papa. And of course, he's like, oh, Marvin, oh, Marvin. He calls him Marvin, which is, uh, which is hilarious because when we went and saw our, our buds, uh, Chase Brew and uh, Jen Brew the Pious over there, uh, we, we stayed. says, my name is Kevin. And it's also Marty. So I'm sometimes called Marvin. And so they left us a sign. And so Marvin the Wizard. I'm totally Marvin the Wizard. Anyway. So Marvin, right? So Merlin. Now, mind you, Merlin's name is my name he's like oh, my name is merlin merlin he says it very distinctly in the movie too listen if you watch it again it says the coastline merlin is mer is from mer mariner sea applied to beings that are fully or partly sea creatures of course right so and where are we if, if you guys know when you talk about the wilderness the the waters above the waters you know the waters below that sort of thing you're in the waters of heaven that sort of thing he's a merlin lin it comes from string a line and it's to delineate line, lineage, lineal, that sort of thing is the, you know, the words that are associated with that. Well, this is the, the horizon. It even says, 
He's literally the where that's the that's the line of the horizon. Okay, well, what rises and sets on the horizon? Literally all the celestial objects. He's an astrologer. That's how you map and track the ascension and declination of stars and the celestial planets. You focus on what? The Merlin, the horizon line that's, you know, so Anyway, then Merlin does this. He's like, oh, I am the powerful wizard. And he's like, I can make it snow. And he goes, that's what I call a wizard blizzard. You know, to me, what is this? It's a subtle reference to weather manipulation. That's what, that's what Merlin's doing right now. He's just, you know, creating weather out of thin air, essentially. And he even says, then Kay's dad is like, oh, oh I hope you don't go in for any of that black magic. Oh, no, no, no. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. Never touch this stuff. No, my magic is used mainly for educational purposes. In fact, that's why I'm here. I've come to educate the wart. Okay? Now check this out. So in the back, um, in this scene, one of these scenes, if you look in the back there, look what's happening. They're, 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 it, it looks, as far as I can tell, it looks like math that they're trying to square the circle. They're, they got the circle and they're putting a line. It's like they're trying to find the radius there. They got the line there kind of thing. It's all these crazy subtle references. So he's like, he's like you don't do black magic, right? You don't do that evil magic. It's like, no. Then this is when Pelinor comes in, right? So this is when, oh, holy, put down the gates. Let me in, that sort of thing. And, you know, Kay's dad is like, or, you know, Sir Dad, whatever, is like, oh, Pelinor, oh, it's so great to see you. And then he comes in and lets him know that, guess what? The winner of the tournament, the winner of this next tournament goes the king of all England. So there's a tournament every new year, as he says. And he's like, yes, I know that, Pelinor. And then Pelinor's like, but this one, this is why he will be the king of England. You know, that kind of thing. And so, um, and then he tells Kay, you can do it. Immediately he goes to Kay. He's like, ah, oh, you can be king of all England. And so, of course, what do they do? They start training to become uh, king. That's the next next scene, of course, right? And then you hear, um, you hear, uh, this is, so while they're training, what, right? Arthur, he's, you know, he's really into it. He's got a ton of passion, ton of spirit, that sort of thing. And you see him basically while, you know, Ward, Ward is the one, um, excuse me, Kay's the one that's like, I'm going to be king of all England. Ward doesn't care at all. Right? Arthur doesn't care at all. All he wants to do is like help out. And this is what Merlin says. That boy, this is this is the key, guys. This is the key, right? It's not about it's not about smarts. It's not about it really it it's it focuses on the central idea and its spirit, right? And he says this. That boy's got real spark, lots of spirit. Throws himself heart and soul into everything he does. Amen. That's really worth something if it can only be turned in the right direction. Ha <laughs> ha. Fat chance of that, Archimedes says. And he goes, oh, I plan to cheat, of course. Use magic. Every last trick in the trade if I have to. <laughs> so he wants to support, you know, this guy that is going to be king of England, right? So, and this is what then, so after that next scene, then Merlin takes the Arthur out again. And this is where they're about to become a fish, right? You guys know. And this is what Wart says. He's like, oh, I give everything to go riding about on a great white charger, slaying dragons and griffins and man-eating giants. Well, won't you, uh, well, won't you, oh no, you see, I'm an orphan and a knight. I must be of proper birth. So he's basically saying, oh, you have to be of proper birth. You have to be of the lineage and the first son, and then you will be king and all this other stuff, right? Well, that's not what God thinks. 
<laughs> at all. No, if you have the spirit and you, you put your heart and soul into everything and you do it because you care for humanity, you care for others, that's who will get rewarded as we know. I'd give anything to go riding about on a great white charger. He's full of adventure. He's ready to take on the adventure. He's, a, he's already a hero. He's not scared of anything, right? He went right into the wilderness knowing that he could have been eaten by a wolf. Doesn't care. And then he's talking about, I want to go riding on a great white charger, which is a big white horse. Pay attention. A great white charger is a big white horse. Pay attention. Slaying dragons and griffins. You guys know what a griffin is? Leo. It's like a lion and a, and a uh, eagle kind of thing. But And man-eating giants. We just talked about giants, about the fact that they were across the, across the world, you know, the idea that there's giants, um, you know, uh, eating uh, other races and all that other stuff. We talked about all that, and that, so I'm not going to get into that. But, so, um, boom. And then he's like, oh, would you like to be a fish, Merlin says to Arthur. And he's like, well, you could turn me into a fish. Well, do you have any imagination? He asks him. Can you imagine yourself as a fish? Oh, easy. That's easy. I've done that lots of times. Oh, well, good then. I think that my magic can do the rest. What is it saying right here? They're talking about the power of imagination, growing your imagination, um, nurturing the creative spark within you and the creative spirit within you, nurturing that. Okay? And so he's like, oh, you're, you know, oh, if you got the imagination, you've got the heart and the soul and the care and, you know, all of that, and you got the imagination, you're fit. Then he turns them into a fish. Then, then they become a fish, of course. And then, of course, this is the famous scene where the song, um, that's what makes the world go round, left and right, dun, dun, dun. and so um, I, I, um, I got um, our piano guy Foundering to play this song for you, and then we'll talk about it at the end. So um, take it away, Mr. Foundering. <laughs> what makes the world go round south and north back and forth that's what makes the world go round for every up there is a down for every square there is a round for every high there is a low for every two there is a fro short and tall large and small that's what makes the world go round thick and thin lose and win that's what makes the world go round we may aim high and wind up low but that's the way life goes i've found and that's what makes the world go round That's what makes the world go round, south and north, back and forth. 
that's what makes the world go round. For every up, there is a down. For every square, there is a round. For every high, there is a low. For every two, there is a fro. Short and tall, large and small, that's what makes the world go round. Thick and thin, lose and win. And that's what makes the world go round We may aim high and wind up low But that's the way life goes, I've found And that's what makes the world That's what makes the world That's what makes the world go round Wasn't that wonderful? So um, if you are not familiar with Foundering or if you don't know who Foundering is, you might want to seek medical attention. I'm not saying, you know, you might need a booster shot or something like that. I'm just saying uh, consult your physician. But anyway, thank you to Foundering for that. Uh, I thought you guys would like that. So um, yes, great song, fantastic song. And this is what he says, and, and Foundering actually highlights it when he says it, too. He says, um, Merlin sings in the, in the movie, he says, left and right, like day and night. That's what makes the world go round, in and out, thin and stout. That's what makes the world go round. For every up, there is a down. For every square. And then Arthur says, there is a round. <laughs> Merlin sings all that. And for every square, then Arthur chimes in, there is a round. Merlin, for every high, there is a low. For every two, there is a fro. Okay. So they're talking about, once again, you know, all these subtle references to what? The squared circle, squaring the circle. Okay. And then Arthur, uh, and then Merlin, excuse me, Merlin says this, says to, in the middle of the song, he's like, but the main thing is that you must set your sights upon the heights. Don't be a mediocrity. Arthur, Arthur says, mediocrity, Merlin, that's right. Don't just wait, then trust to fate and say, that's how it's meant to be. It's up to you how far you go. If you don't try, you'll never know. And so, my lad, as I've explained, nothing ventured, nothing gained. We just talked about the fact that, where's this castle of yours? Where are you going? It's in the north. It's in the high place, right? Set your sights upon the heights. When he says this, right, right, right next to it is a big chain. And the chain is going in. This is the screenshot, as you obviously see. There's the chain that goes all the way up to heaven, and there's what? There's one that goes all the way to earth. And what's on the left of them? There's a castle. Right? There's the castle. So <laughs> you're chained one way or another. You're either chained to the high or you're chained to the low. That's what they're saying. So, and where's this high place in the north, right? Where's this like, oh, and he says, um, that, but your main thing is that you must set your sights upon the heights. Where's the heights? Polaris. It's the northern star in our in our cosmology. Okay? And in fact, our cosmology is this is circle, right? So this would be the point in the center of the, the, the circle, right? Now let's look at the chain. It makes that circle and there's like a center and it goes all the way up to the top. See that? Okay. So now what is this song about? That's what makes the world go round that our that our friend, <clears throat> our piano guy, Foundering, just sang for us. What is this song about? It's ultimately about the key principle within alchemy, alchemy, and that is the coincidentia positorum, the unity of opposites. What is the coincidentia positorum, the unity of opposites, the unity, unity of opposites? Pretty self-explanatory. You've got opposites, and ultimately they come from a union. You're taking the opposites, the left and the right, the day and the night, the right and the wrong, that sort of thing, merging them into something greater and higher. 
It's understanding that just as we saw in Genesis 1. Oh, I don't know if I can even go back here, right? In Genesis 1, it says what? In the beginning, a singular thing created what? The circle and the square, the heaven and the earth, the material and the, the, the physical and the non-physical, the metaphysical, right? But ultimately, it comes from one source. The unity of opposites, so the coincidentia appositorum is, is recognized that in the world, there's like the, in this sense, there's these polarities. But this is not dualistic thinking at all. It's recognizing that these polarities come from one eternal source, okay? And that's really what... Um, that's what that song is all about. That's what makes the world go round is day and night, left and right. Polarities stemming from unity are bound within the kingdom of heaven and earth. As heaven and earth, mystically understood to be mirrors of one another, are indeed cosmic polarities. There are many well-known dualities, such as alpha, omega, day and night, dark and light, first and last, beginning and end, good, evil, positive, negative, active, passive, truth, false, uh, true, false, yin, yang, man, woman, acidic, alkaline, Adam, Eve, sun, moon, hot, cold, health, disease, right, wrong, constructive, destructive, the list goes on and on and on and on. The human body is a reflection of the image of God's design. Just look at, I think I have this here, man split, just look at the human body. In this sense, you're, you're split, right? Two eyes and it's mirror. There's this mirror. Just look at your hands. It's a perfect example of this mirror. You are, you, it's you, we are a representation of the coincidence oppositorum, that we are united opposites, okay? And so ultimately the coincidence oppositorum or the unity of opposites is to merge these things. And in, as you know, I, I say it like this, it's basically you, you have your, your left and your right and you merge them into the one celestial beam of faith is what I like to call it. But it's a unity of opposites, right? So basically, if you look at, you can you can uh, explain this through the hemispheres of your brain too, right? The left is the logical, analytical, sequencing, linear, mathematical, linguistic, factual, computational, that sort of thing. That's sort of the is what's considered the left hemisphere of your brain. The right is the creative, the imaginative, the 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 holistic, intuitive, neurological, artistic, rhythmic, nonverbal, that sort of thing, right? So you have your the the right and left hemispheres of your brain. So, and ultimately what you, what you want to do is merge those. And that really makes, that's really what a, a, the sort of a holistic being is really all about, right? And you actually understand, and you understand this idea perfectly, perfectly through carpentry, through Jesus's profession, Jesus's profession, carpentry, carpentry. Jesus was a carpenter, by the way, do you think he worked in circles and squares? Do you think he ever made a round table? <laughs> he probably made a hell of a round table. Anyway. Carpentry is a skill and profession that creatively merges both the very structural, methodical, mechanical, and engineering aspects of math and unites, it, unites them harmoniously with the artistic and visual appealing creative side. So carpentry, masonry, the you know, building it, itself is a profession in which what? You actually go through the coincidentia positorum because it's not, you're not just building something that's structurally sound and all the, it's a level and the corners are all right angles and blah, 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 blah. No, it's also merging artistry and beauty, right? Creativity, that sort of thing. And so carpentry itself is, so once again, normous, Norma, Circanus, Norma, Circanus, compasses and square, right? The art of building a church, a temple, a cathedral, a house, when it is done, when it is done with great skill and elevated craftsmanship, brings to light these polar yet congenial facets within the study of geometry. Any building that is built with integrity, care, attention to detail, and a focus on quality and beauty is indeed the product of this of the harmonious union of these different aspects of mathematics, and is exactly what brings the entire building to life as the common phrase is often uttered. So, you know, uh, Jesus, his profession, 
was all about merging these creative, the creative with the logical, right? The analytical with the imaginative, the imaginative, that sort of thing. Um, we understand the coincidence of the positorum through a magnet too. A magnet is, uh, you know, it's a, one magnet, right? But it's got these polar ends, right? But it comes from one magnet. It's not, it's not like it's a separate thing, right? It's only perceived separate. We actually understand this through genders. The coincidentia positorum, it's, it's also known as the alchemical wedding, the alchemical marriage, we'll get into that. But it's this notion that the human being spiritually, spiritually, internally, not externally, internally, that spirit, that energy, it has a polar nature and it's understood best by gender. Now, once again, I just want to stop here. Externally, you are a man or you are a woman. That's why you have the penis and the breasts and the vagina, all that sort of stuff. We know that, right? Inter this is what we're talking about internally, that you have these two sides, just like the aspects of your brain, and ultimately you want to merge them and make, the, the, make them harmonious, and you will ultimately rise to be a better person. This is what the alchemical marriage, the alchemical wedding is all about. And it takes a very um, adult, a very... Uh, um, uh, I, I don't know how else to say this, to accept this, because especially in our world, because so many people are like, trans this, and you know, that sort of stuff. It's not what this is about. This is about a spiritual idea. By embodying both the male and female genders within one spiritual vessel is signifying through symbolize, symbolism the first form, the transcendent being before the fall, before the split. Before Eve was carved from Adam, Adam is the image of the man reflected as God. God is not separate, and nothing can be separate from him. The androgynine figure most astutely and artistically captures this notion of total unity and unification of all opposites. Man is created with a single energy that is polar in nature. With these polarities of left and right, or positive and negative, if you will, manifesting as the genders of male and female. Okay? Just as a man and woman come together externally to produce or beget a child, Man must marry and unite those energy, that energy within in him, the polar energy within him, must unite to what? Birth a new spiritual being. And this is what it's all about. This is Hankaka Alawampi, he's a Seneca native that says this, We human beings are catalyzers who have electromagnetic giving and receiving bodies. We are the bridge that connects earth and sky when we are in harmony. Like Mother Earth and Father Sky, we are male and female in nature. The command of usable energy comes when male and female are in balance within us. Do you know what the hermetic corpus says? I think it's number six or seven of the seven hermetic principles is that gender manifests in all things. Manifests in you too. What do we mean by, what are you saying? There's a woman inside you partially, Marty? Yes, yes. What do I mean by this? What are the feminine, classic feminine, What left and right, Day and night, that's what makes the world go round. Ultimately, you take in these, these opposites and uniting them to something greater. What is the attributes or aspects of feminine nature, right? Nurturance, sensitivity, sweetness, supportiveness, gentleness, warmth, passivity, cooperativeness, expressiveness, modesty, humility, empathy, affection, tenderness, being emotional, kind and helpful, devoted, understanding. General attributes usually attributed to more female. Masculine, what about those? Independence, dominance, aggression, protective, provider, strength, courage, assertiveness, competitiveness, taking action, ambitious, bold, stoic, creator, leader, analytical, logical, freedom, great, awesome. Now be both of those things. Now what do you got? A king. That's what you got. Outside, you know, just as you, like maybe you're a female, I'm a male, I have a role to play externally because I'm a man right? Internally, what am I doing though? 
That's what I want. I want to to merge those two and become a better, higher being, spiritually. Why Why do we know that this is true? That there's this idea that there's the polar polarities within us, that that spirit, this one, that one, one, you know, beam of spiritual spirituality, or the spirit within us, it has this sort of a duality to it, electromagnetic kind of thing. Look at look at people, spectrum, the spectrum of polarity, excuse me, the spectrum of polarity expressed externally, a butch and a bitch, right, in in the lesbian sense, right, one tends to be more masculine and one tends to be more feminine. This person is taking an internal thing and externalizing it in this sense, right? And not being balanced with it, actually focusing on more one than the other, okay? What happens, so in other words, the potentiality of a person to go either way like this uh, is is in the human being. Same thing with, you know, men. Men and women, it's, it's no different. You're a being that has this energy within you and it's polar. That, that's why when some men are born, they're more effeminate, right? Why? They're, it's not like that effeminate energy isn't within them, but basically because of our culture and stuff like that too, that that gets like, you know, it's like they focused on that and it's like they try to bring that out of people. It's like, no, 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 no. No, what you're supposed to do is recognize that, guess what? Actually, you have both of those within you right now. You've got gay boy on the left there and you got liver king on the right. And this is when the, it goes to extremes, right? You don't want to be in the extremes. You don't want to be the toxic masculine man or the feminine, you know, cock man either. No, 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 no. You want to be better. You want to find the balance between those two, recognize that harmony and lift you up into something greater. You want to embody all of those things. Because then you'll be a great man or a great woman. Um, and this is, I'm speaking generally, of course, but this is essentially what the alchemical uh, marriage is all about. It's recognizing, embodying those principles and not going one way or the other, balancing them, harmonizing them, recon- recognizing who you are externally and being a holistic being as opposed to a halved being, if you will. This is what the alchemical wedding, alchemical marriage is all about. Endless illustrations telling you this telling you that the complete man is actually a person who's balanced the opposites within him. The marriage, the alchemical wedding, sun and moon coming together, the dove that's falling, you know, coming down to the symbol of peace, of course, right? This is one that's referencing pie. I mean, I don't know how you can't see pie there, guys. Come on, <laughs> right? This is uh, Richard Gassaro, my bud Richard over there. Mason. Anyway, Richard Gassaro, great dude, great writer, great books. Um, he's he's discovered this all over the world. It's, it's the God self icon, and it's literally uh, Bolivia and Egypt, North America and Sumer and Giraffe, wherever that is, Indonesia, Peru, Nigeria, Minoan, Persia, Indian, Greece, all over the world. You find the same character, and what does this character do? He's he's strung between two poles. So he is. What's the poles? Left and right, day and night. That's what makes the world go round, thick and thin, lose and win. It's opposites. Merge the opposites into something greater. Once again, this is uh, Ard Ard Hanasrava. I think is how you say that. It's the Hindu deity. What is it? It's a male and female combined into one. The right half is usually the male Shiva, illustrating his traditional attributes. Pavarti Ard Hanasrava is depicted as half half male and half female. The merging of opposites in this figure. Why do you think Jesus is called the bridegroom? Jesus, you're my bridegroom. Jesus, you're my bridegroom. My bridegroom. What does that mean? Does anybody have any idea what that means? The Gnostics do. The alchemists do. 
It's because what's a bride? What's a groom? You guys know. What happens? They get married. And they be, and, right? In this sense. It's, it was, once again, poetic, subtle language. No opposites, all is one. This is revelation. Once again, I'm, I'm just pointing out the fact that this simple song of two fish swimming in Arthur and Merlin has incredible alchemical meaning. Um, and the city of city of God had no need for the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. Didn't, opposites were merged and united into something greater. No divisions. Unity with God in this sense. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. That's what shined Christ Almighty in God's in God's city. And the gates, it shall not be shut. There's no open and do- there's no shut and closed. It's just open. That's it. <laughs> all day is no night. But there should be no night there. It's just day all day long. There's no separation. Okay. This is by, once again, I'm just going to end this here, but this is uh, the first Adam and the last Adam. So what is the first Adam? It's the Adam before the fall. It's the Adam that what? Before Eve was taken from Adam. Eve was taken from Adam. The first man is the earth of, is of the earth earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Jesus Christ is known as the second Adam, the Adam secundus, the final Adam, the second Adam. That Adam has Eve within him. Facts. Facts. This is old Adam passing it off to Christ, the new Adam in the New Testament. This is before the fall, before Eve was taken from Adam. What did Adam have in him? The female. He was a perfect being. I just want to say this for all you gematria hounds out there. Jesus Christ equals 59. Alchemical wedding equals 59. English alphabet equals 59. Alchemical marriage equals 59. And feminine masculine equals 59. Did you notice that feminine masculine equals 29 and 30? What does alchemical marriage equal? 29 and 30. What does alchemical wedding equal? 29 and 30. So after the fish and, you know, they're swimming in and all that sort of stuff, then... There, uh, of course, there's a big fish that goes to attack him, right? And 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 of Merlin's like, hey, use your brain, brain over brawn. Now you get to show your merits, young wart. You know you got this. So this big beast, it's in the it's in the you know it's in the water, is going after wart. And what happens? He gets stuck in a chain, <laughs> chained to the lower natures that beast that fish was. Okay. So now, and there's the fight with the fish, of course, and Archimedes comes in and helps him and stuff like that. Once again, he's Arthur right there. Wart is on his quest. Everybody, all the, the, the waters are going to part to make sure that this guy becomes king. If there's an owl that's got to come in and help him and some bird later on, all the things are going to happen because this is ordained by God. Then he gets out of the water, right? And he's like, that big fish almost swallowed me. That's what he says. Right? Pay attention. That big fish almost swallowed me, he says. And then he runs back to the castle because he's like, oh, I got to get back. I got the demerits and I got to wash dishes and all that other stuff, right? So then he gets back to the castle and this is what he's like, guys, I just became a fish and it was the biggest fish I've ever seen. And he's like, oh, more demerits for you, what? Right? And I think, I think at this point he's got like 20 demerits or something. I don't know. Anyway, but he's like, and then he goes, ah, that's the biggest, this is what the, this is what the father says. That's the biggest fish story I've ever heard, is what he says. And, he, and then as Wart's walking away, he goes, 
ah, there's something fishy going on around here. <laughs> so, what is this a reference to? Jonah and the whale. Duh, right? Classic motif of of, of a being of a you know of, that ends up being a prophet essentially goes into a whale's belly for three days or whatever, right? Well, there's more star study here, of course. Jonah and the whale is the constellation Cetus. It's a big water beast. And that water beast is right by the Aries, which is the lamb and the ram. And uh, it's right by Pisces there, too. And we'll get back to Pisces. So, okay. So we'll stop there and we're going to do uh, donations. Anybody that likes to support the work, the, the fine work that we do here at the Nostra Church and Academy of Lord Jesus Christ, you can become a member at Subscribestar if you want to support monthly or if you want to do Venmo or buy me a coffee cash app. We, we really appreciate anybody that likes to uh, support the church and what we do here. It's, uh, it's good work. So anyway, so thank you all for joining us. Let's do a little music. If you'd like to send any donations or a uh, letter or anything like that, make checks payable to Kevin McNally, N17178, Country Pride Drive, Pembine, Wisconsin, 54156. All right. Thank you all so much. Let's get on with the show. Okay. So now, of course, he got, Arthur's got the demerits. Go down, wash the dishes, right? And so Merlin shows up and he's like, ah, he's going to rescue him from washing the dishes, right? And basically, this is what he says. So Merlin's like, hey, now, have you ever considered being a squirrel? Well, no, I, I don't suppose. Well, now there's a tiny creature with enormous problems. Now he has survived. How he has survived throughout the ages is one of the nature's biggest mysteries. His life is hazardous, downright dangerous. Um, would you like to try it? Oh, oh no, I better not. Oh no. Oh, it's like oh, it's too dangerous for you, huh? Oh no, it's not that. It's just that I got six demerits, all this work to do, right? So basically, what what is Merlin doing? He's testing him. He's like, oh, are are you fit for this adventure? To become king of all England? He's like, oh, I don't, I'd love to be a squirrel. I've got no problem with the danger and stuff like that. But I got my work to do. Right? Of course, then this is the scene in which Merlin's like, ah, I, I got this. Right? The, the, uh, I love this scene, right? I mean, who doesn't love this scene? The dishwashing scene where all of a sudden, next thing you know, there's like all this crazy jazz music and blah, 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 blah. So... And this is what he's like. This is how he takes care of it. So Merlin's like, ah, I'll take care of this, right? He's like, what a mess. What a medieval muddle. We'll have to modernize it. Make an assembly line, he says. Make it an assembly line. Well, who, who made the assembly line? That's Henry Ford. Henry Ford, of course, Ford Motor Company, was uh, began using his innovation at, a, at the Highland Park assembly plant. And this was, uh, you know, really changed the face of manufacturing. And, of course, Henry Ford was a known anti-Semite. Just like Walt Disney, he was a known anti-Semite. Uh, he wrote a book called The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem. And in 1938, Ford was awarded Nazi Germany's Grand Cross of the German Eagle, a, a, a medal given to foreigners sympathetic to Nazism. So, I don't know. Do you think that there's a, some subtle references here? Oh, what a mess. We need to make an assembly line. 
Interesting. Anyway, so then, of course, the dishes start washing, and then Arthur you know, like, goes on his adventure with Merlin. And, of course, he becomes a squirrel. Right? Now, think about it. Look at the word choice here. He was going to be a squire. He was training to be a squire, case squire. Right? Oh, it's such a big job, that kind of thing. Right? So the squire, and now he's a squirrel. Right? And what the, the first scene that you see Arthur as a squirrel, he's leaping off a, a branch into like it looks like into nowhere which basically says this kid is fit for adventure he's not scared he's not a, he's not you know wallowing in in victimhood or worry or he's just like i'll take it on why what why why are they keep making this point because that's what you need to be ready for the adventure of this life okay then they equate gravity with love Right. It's almost like and I'm, I'm going to say this because it's almost like they're subtly mocking gravity. Right. This was released in 1963. Of course, the space program, I think it started in 19 mid 50s, something like that, late 50s, something like that. So it had just been going. Of course, people were, you know, getting excited about that sort of stuff. And so this is what this is what he says. So don't take gravity too lightly or it'll catch up with you. He's like, what's gravity? Gravity is what causes you to fall. It's the force that pulls you downward. The, the phenomenon that any two material particles or bodies, if free to move, will be accelerated with one another. So as he's teaching them about gravity, what's actually happening? He's, he's dealing with love. He's falling in love. Well, the, the girl squirrel, the girl squirrel is falling in love with him. So the phenomenon that any two material particles or bodies is free to move will be accelerated towards each other. Okay. So pretty, I don't know. I, I, I think it's like, I think it's really sly trickery is actually what it is. And they're, what actually is going on is I think they're kind of making fun of gravity and the ball and stuff like that. And I'll show that as we move on. But of course... What's the story here? Oh, see, he becomes a squirrel. He gives him this life of danger and adventure and stuff like that. And he writes, and this is what Merlin's warning him. He's like, it's dangerous. And then what's the danger that he undergoes? The first danger, love, right? Basically, this this whole thing. And of course, what happens then? I think I got the next slide. That of course, Merlin, there's a girl squirrel that falls in love with Merlin as well. And he's like, oh, I'm a, I'm an old man, right? I'm not a squirrel, right? What is what is what is being said here? Part of that hero's journey that you will go on in this life, you're gonna deal with love. You're gonna fall in and out of love. It's one of the hardest things, a part of the journey. Falling in love, falling out of love, dealing with you know, you know, desires and wants and passion and all that sort of stuff. That is part of the hero's journey. And of course, of course, Merlin, um, you know, when when he made him a squirrel, you know, in the sense he, you know underwent that part of the journey so love is the adventure in other words now also then lupus shows up the wolf shows back up and what happens right same sort of thing like he almost gets caught there's all this sort of things happen and the girl squirrel helps him out even you know this sort of thing every every there's like a billion times in this movie where he almost got it he almost got caught by the wolf just gets by just gets by why because fate's on his side then this is one of the saddest parts of the movie, right? And this is where the 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 girl squirrel, of course, Arthur becomes, you know, all of a sudden Alakazam or whatever. Merlin changes Arthur back to Arthur, and then of course we have the the girl squirrels like, ah, and then she's and it's like a really sad part of the movie. And then you have the song, a most befuddling, most befuddling thing, most befuddling thing, right? You know this song, and um, so I think it'd be best to let let's let um, our piano guy foundering play this one for you okay let's do that it's the simple attraction of the birds and bees 
It's as academic as the ABCs. It's a state of being, a frame of mind. It's the most befuddling thing. And to every being of every kind, it is discombobulating. Don't try to analyze it. You'll find the more you do, the more you realize it is most impossible to. But she bites and she scratches, she doesn't play fair. It's a rough game, anyone knows. And she pinches out and she pulls hair. There are no rules, anything goes. There's no logical explanation for this dis. Combumeration, it's a most bemodeling, most befuddling thing. It's a force of nature, a fact of life. For a him, there's always a her. This is no small whim, seems that you are her him. So you're out on a limb as it were. There's no sensible explanation for this discombumeration. It's a most hodgepodgeical, most illogical, most confusing, a most bamboozling, most bemodeling, most befuddling thing. So, there's no sensible explanation for this discombumeration. It's a most hodgepodgeical, most illogical, most confusing, most bamboozling, most bemuddling, most befuddling thing love is. One of the one of the most difficult things on the on the road of life, huh? So, uh, great. So, thanks to um, our piano guy foundering once again. Awesome. So, all right. And then as the scene takes off as they, you know, basically they come back to being human and then they start walking away, and he's like, ah, you know, lad, that love business is a powerful thing. Greater than gravity? Well, yes, boy, in its way, I'd, I'd say it's the greatest force on earth. That's, that's how he ends it. So, greater than gravity? Oh, yes, boy, it's, oh, it's the greatest force on earth. Why? Why do we know that? Because God is love. That's why. Okay. So... Then we get the next scene where, of course, uh, Kay and the sir, the woman comes out and is like, oh, it's black magic. Oh, the kitchen is alive, that sort of thing. So they go down and they try to use their materiality against the forces of the metaphysical. And, of course, they get, you know, I'll just say this, Kay gets mopped, right? This is a great scene where the mop takes him and he's like starts washing the floor with him. So, you know, basically just get they just get hammered by all these dishes and stuff like that. This sword breaks in the, the lower left there. You see that? So and then this is what they say. So um, Merlin comes back in and he's like, oh, Alakazam or whatever. And then stops all the dishes. Right. And then this guy's like, oh, Merlin, you old goat. You evil. He's like, you're evil. You're an old goat. He's, you know, your spells and your black magic. You old goat. You goat is what he says. Then this woman comes in and she's like, oh, Merlin, you old goat. Right? So why is, so they're calling him the devil and they're saying he's a goat. Why is the goat represented as um, the devil in this sort of sense, right? Um, let's go here. Let's do this one. The goat sign is the sign of Capricorn, right? And it's the darkest time of year. Basically, this is when the sun is at its lowest. Or the days are the, the shortest, of course. So it's the darkest time of year, okay? And um, 
And so it's represented as Capricorn, which is the goat. So when you talk about darkness and evil and that sort of stuff, that's why. It's a reference to literally astrology, of course. That's what Merlin is. Capricorn, the sign of the goat, is its ruling planet is Saturn. And what is Saturn? Saturn is known as Kronos, Father Time, Saturn, Satan, that sort of thing, of course, right? So they're saying like, ah, you're the goat, you're the Capricorn, you're Satan, right? You're representing the darkest time of year. And this is Saturn, Kronos, of course, eating children and... Um, you might want to talk to uh, Walt Disney and Henry Ford about the kind of people that eat children, but that's neither here nor thither. Anyway, so um, you know, so that's what they're saying. There's like, oh no, you're you're one of those eat black magic and stuff like that. And of course, Ward comes in. He's like, he might cast an evil spell. Oh no, this is what I'm sorry. This is what um, uh, Kay's like. Oh, I'm glad he's gone or something like that. And good riddance or something like that. And then the father's like, he might cast an evil spell on the lot of us, turn us all into stone. No, there's no telling what the old devil might do. The old devil, right? And then Arthur comes in. He's like, he's not an old devil. He, he's good. And his magic is good too. I'm sorry. My Arthur voice is terrible. If you just leave him alone, he's, he's backing him up, basically saying, no, like dishwashing is that black magic sort of thing. And so he, you know, he, he mouths off to, um, his father. And so his father's like, that's three more demerits, right? And he's like, that's it. Hobbs, this other guy is going to be Kay's squire. You're not going to be his squire anymore. Remember, he just came from being a squirrel. You're not going to be a squire anymore. This Hobbs guy is, right? And then the next scene you see, of course, he's in, you know, doing his demerits, washing his dishes, a whole room full of dishes, you know, it's never ending. And then he's like, and then Merlin shows up and Merlin's like, oh, I'm sorry. This was all my fault. And you know, young, the young warther is like, oh, I shouldn't have popped off. You know, I shouldn't have, you know, I should, you know, I should have just did what I was supposed, what I was told to do as opposed to what my heart told me to do. Right. And then this is where Merlin's like, well, you know, what are you going to do about it? You can't go down now. No, 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 no. We're already, we're already making our way up to the north, up to the Polaris, up to the center of the heavens. Right. You can't go down now. It can only be up from here. I'd like to know how. Use your head. And as he's saying, use his head, what is he doing? He takes his stick, his wand, his staff, Merlin does, and bops him on the head again, on his Aries, on his lamb, on his ram, right? An education lad. And he's like, well, what good will that do? Well, get it first. Then who knows? Are you willing to try? Well, what have I got to lose? That's the spirit. He's spirited, okay? Then the next scene is this. <laughs> Like, you got to get yourself an education, right? And then it says, and then it shows the the world terra firma, right? <sighs> Basically where we actually live. Um, the, the flat earth. And, you know, it's in this, or in this in the classic way to make fun of it, right? Like, oh, you're going to fall off the edge and there's a dragon underneath there and there's a wind and blah, 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 blah. That sort of thing, right? And so what is this saying? So Merlin is about to teach Arthur about the flat earth, right? And this is what he says. And it basically what's what, as far as I can tell, what Walt Disney's actually doing is showing you and saying to you that, hey, even these wizards can be fooled, right? Listen, he says this. Now, first of all, lad, we've got to get all these medieval ideas out of your head. Clear the way for new ideas, knowledge of man's fabulous discoveries. Now, remember, when Merlin comes back, what does he say? Blow, he blows me to Bermuda and then he comes back from Bermuda and he's like, the place is a mess. It's a shithole, <laughs> he says. No, I mean, he doesn't say that, but you know what I mean, right? Fabulous discoveries in the centuries ahead. Now that'll be a great advantage, boy. Advantage indeed. If the boy goes up and then Archimedes says this, 
He's like, if the boy goes about saying that the world is round, they'll take him for a lunatic. And then Arthur's like, the world is round? He's like, yes, yes, that's right. And it also goes around. You mean it'll be round someday, Arthur says. Merlin's like, no, 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 no. It's round now. Man will discover this in centuries to come. And we'll also find out that the world is merely a tiny speck in the universe. Arthur's like, universe? What's a universe? Archimedes chimes in and says, oh, you're only confusing the boy. Before you're through, he'll be so mixed up, he'll, he'll be wearing his shoes on his head. He'll, he'll be believing that there's upside-down people in Australia. <laughs> That's what he's saying, right? And so then, as he's saying this, he's like, no, it actually goes around too. Merlin takes, as you can see, step-by-step step here, Merlin grabs the ball, starts it spinning counterclockwise, and the symbol of wisdom, the owl, is on top of the earthly sphere. And what happens? The symbol of wisdom gets spun around and gets smacked into it. So basically, he's like, as he's saying, yes, it's around. Then the symbol of wisdom, once again, that's what the owl is, gets turned around and spun around. He's like, ah, right? And there's globe symbolism all over this thing. Um, you know, and I'll actually show you once again why I think this is subtle references. You'll see it at the end. Subtle references to actually calling out the globe. Subtly, I'll show you. Um, as you can see, when he's in the tower in the one scene, it's like raining in. And then there's a, there's a, he's like washing off the globe there. So. <clears throat> anyway, and then this is, this is what Merlin's like. All right, then fine. Archimedes, you teach him. That sort of thing, right? And he says... Man has always learned from the past. After all, you can't learn history in reverse. It's, it's, it's confusing enough, for heaven's sakes. Man has always learned from the past, right? Because why? We're in, a, uh, in this sense, we're in a, a darker age. And then Merlin's like, all right, all right, have it your way, Archimedes. You're in charge of the boy now. You're the headmaster now. Why do you think they call it a headmaster? Headmaster now. You're the headmaster now. Then the next scene is, Archimedes the owl teaching him the alphabet because he finds out, oh, I can't even read. So I got to teach you how to, you know, read and write, that sort of thing. So Merlin's, or excuse me, Archimedes is on the boy's head, is on the boy's head, right? And Mer, or Arch, excuse me, Arthur is spelling out A, B, C, D, E, F, and he stops at G. So Archimedes the owl is on Arthur's head and he's like, use your head, boy. He, bounce, he pounces on him several times and he goes, use your head, use your head. And as he's doing that, he's writing the letter G. Well, for those of you guys that are you know uh, familiar with this channel, um, it's the septenary cipher. The septenary cipher is all based on the number, on the letter G. Okay, this is what the Freemasonic compasses and square is referenced to. It's literally gematria. It's just ancient science. Okay, um, so there you have it. So this, is, this scene is subtly referencing English gematria. The owl is jumping. The owl is Archimedes who did what? It's allegedly discovered pi in this sense, right? What is the G? It's seven in English Gematrian. What is that? 22. And 22 divided by seven is 3.142. Archimedes, the owl, representing wisdom. Pi is banging on his head saying, use your head as he's writing the letter G. <laughs> he's like, use your head. So right there, then, then this is, this is what happens. Then, uh, Merlin's saying, basically man will fly one day. Oh, man will fly. All right. Oh, 
just like a rock. <laughs> it would have worked if it, if it, if it weren't for this infernal beard. The owl. <laughs> scene so hilarious then so then merlin and then as he's saying about flying arthur's like oh i've I've always dreamed about flying right which is basically what it's saying that he this this young boy has worked on his creative uh the creative aspects within him right he's developed his imagination and creativity is part of is a huge part of of spirituality it really is so i've always dreamed about flying what does merlin do merlin comes over taps him on the head and or right above his head says you know says his magic spell and he says prestidigitonium that's what he says and then of course arthur becomes a bird now let's look at the word prestidigitonium he says it several times throughout the movie do you know you guys know what a prestidigitator is a prestidigitator is someone or prestidigitation is someone that does magic tricks especially ones performed in a very skillful way using the hands using the hands so as Merlin's turning him into a bird, he's like, prestidigitonium, a prestidigitator. Presto, of course, means quick. We've got a magician that's like, presto, right? Quick, immediately, quick, you know, you know, that sort of thing. Digit comes from the Latin word digitus, which means finger. So in other words, very quick with his fingers. He's a prestidigitator, okay? So for those of you that, once again, have been paying attention to the Nostitution Academy of Lord Jesus Christ, um, is Marty quick with his fingers? Don't take that the wrong way. Get your head out of the gutter. You know what I'm saying. All right, straighten up, class. Is Marty quick with his fingers? I think he is, isn't he, right? I'm a prestidigitator. <laughs> prestidigitonium. Quick with the digitus, the Latin fingers. In other words, once again, it's a reference to the hands. It's a reference to the hands, okay? So um, then he turns him into a bird, and then Archimedes tells him about the way, the Tao, the ever-flowing way of this creation, right? Now, boy, flying is not merely some crude mechanical process, Archimedes says. It's a delicate art, purely aesthetic, and he says this, poetry of motion. And isn't that what we keep saying, that the mystical, esoteric pursuit is ultimately to get into that state of an elevated consciousness where you see that this world, that there's a poetry to it, that there's a flow to it. That God, that God in this sense is the, you know, once again is, you know, the chief Psalm of David. He's the chief musician, right? The chief musician of Psalms, right? Um, And so therefore, what is he doing? He's the conductor and he's just, you know, everything, huge swoops and ebbs and flows of, you know, all this sort of thing. That's what that's what this creation is. And this is what he's saying. He's like, ah, oh, if you want to flow and fly with this creation, it's a poetry of motion. Of course, then the next thing you find is there's, of course, they have to, he has to, because he's on his hero's journey, right? So every time he undergoes any of this stuff, he's got to deal with some sort of, you know, um, whatever it is, you know, a, a beast or a, a evil or something that he's got to, you know, contend with. And of course, the, there was the fish and then there's the, you know, now we have a bird, right? That sort of thing squirrel he's dealt with the lupus the fox or the wolf excuse me so there's a there's an eagle that all of a sudden and of course eagle there's a reference to aquila the bird right um it's a big you know large constellation in the sky 
And um, so then this bird, this big eagle, goes and, and flies and tries to get Arthur, who's a bird. And so he flies and he goes and he goes to into the wilderness again, into the dark place, right? And he goes into this witch's hat. I don't know if you guys ever noticed that it looks like a big witch's hat. And he ends up going through the roof as, as he goes through. And I'll get to that in just a second. So, so he's a bird and he's flying away from the eagle and that sort of thing. Now, what just happened? Pay attention to this. What just happened to Arthur? Like every time he 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 um he changed, like he went for he went to a, a fish, and then he's a squirrel, then he's a bird, right? What? So first he was a squirrel. Arthur was a squirrel. Then he was a fish. Right? No, I'm sorry. First he was a fish. Then he was a squirrel. Then he was a bird. Right? What is this? What is a squirrel? Lives on Earth. Where does a bird live? In the air. Where does the fish live? In water. In other words, earth, air, water, and there's only one that's missing, fire. Earth, air, and water. In other words, he transformed, Merlin transformed him into the three of the four main phases of what? Astrology. Alchemy. Okay? Earth, air, water, and what's the last one? Fire. Well, what's he about to go do? Face a dragon. That's what he's about to do in the story. King Arthur's dad is named Uther Pendragon. Of course, where's the dragon? The dragon is what we're all we'll all have to face one day. We're all in King Ar we're all in Wart's predicament, by the way. All of us. All of us are gonna have to go, mystically speaking, and go up north to the top of the mountain and go slay a dragon. And that's about what that's what's gonna happen. So his name his his father's name was Uther Pendragon. Pendragon. Literally the the the, the syllables. Pendragon. The pen, of course, is mightier than the sword. The sword and the stone. So, came a squirrel, earth. Came a fish, water. Right? Came a bird, air. And now he's about to go and face the dragon. So, the eagle almost gets him, right? Just gets away. And what does he do? He goes through the roof again. Of course he does. He's the king. That's where the king enters. He falls into the fireplace and ends up in the hearth. What is the hearth? It's the fireplace. It's the place. It's literally that's what the hearth means. It's fireplace. Hearth is just an H away from heart. And what is what is the pyramid? The fire in the middle. That's your heart. Of course, that's where the spirit is. Okay, so of course, naturally, he falls through the roof. What's Mim doing? She's playing solitaire. She's alone. She, she has evil in her heart. She's, she's dealing with black magic. She's all that sort of thing. She's alone playing solitaire, playing a, de a, playing a game of cards. By the way, the, the deck of cards, I didn't add this in the slide here, but the deck of cards encodes what? A solar calendar. 1 through 13, 1 through 13, 1 through 13, 1 through 13. Those are the four suits. You add 1 through 13, it equals 91. 91 times 4 is 364. And you add a, you add a joker and you got what? 365. So the game of the game of um, of cards actually encodes a calendar. This is the marvelous Mad Madam Mim, right? Mad Madam Mim, the marvelous Mad Madam Mim. What does Mim mean? Mim comes from words like mimetic, mime to mimograph. I think you say that mimemis, mimic, mimicry, the act of mimicking to imitate, imitative, print copies to imitate. Okay, what does Mad Madam Mad Madam Mim do? Of course, she sees the she sees the a uh, little sparrow, right? That that Arthur is, and he's and he's like, oh, I'm actually a boy. I know Merlin is the most powerful wizard in the world, and he changed me, right? Well, um, 
Oh, right here. I'm sorry. Here's the here's the shapeshifter mimicking. That's what Mad Madam M is. She's mimicking. She's a shapeshifter, so she can be as huge as a house or as tiny as a mouse. She can look beautiful, or she can look like a big, you know, a big, big pig there. Turn into a cat to eat the mouse. She's a mim. She's a mimicking, miming, shapeshifting, that sort of thing, right? And so then uh, 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 Arthur goes in and is like, oh, he's the most powerful wizard in the world. And this is what Mim says. Holds up her finger, prestidigitonium, holds up her finger and says, I've got more magic in one little finger. See the subtle references going on here? And then, he, and then Arthur says, well, Merlin's magic is always useful. Your magic is dark magic, right? So then, Madam, Mad Madam Mim becomes a cat and is about to take out, take out the little sparrow here, right? And she grabs him, and then all of a sudden, shh, and then the um, Arthur gets plunked into the center of a target, right? Look at the arrows. Three, one, four. And the right, the one right there is one three, so read it this way: it's three one four one, or is it three one four one three? Three one four one, or is it three one four one? Anyway, and the other things I, I can't really tell what these are if that's a where these are landed anyway. But just pretty interesting, you know. So then, you know, she's a, she's a, she grabs him. Arthur grabs Arthur. As a cat, just about to eat him. And what does Arthur do? Plucks her on the nose. On the nose, guys. Think about it. What's on the nose? No. Talk about subtlety. I won't say anymore. Plucks her on the nose and poof, she becomes back to Mad Madam Mim. She wasn't trying to. In other words, what are they showing here? Arthur and his latent power, his potentiality, the power that he has within him and he doesn't even know. He just undid the spell of Mad Madam Mim, who is claiming to be the greatest wizard above Merlin. Pops her on the nose and poof, she's back to being who she is. King Arthur's got some power. He doesn't even know. He's got potentiality there, power. And then, of course, we have the wizard's duel. The famous, oh, great scene, great scene. The wizard's duel, right? And then Mad Madam Mim makes the rules, of course. She says, now rule one, no mineral or vegetable, only animal. Rule two, no make-believe things. And, of course, she's going to break the rules. That's, you know, it's, you know, she's a liar. It's just like when Jesus went up with, you know, the devil up to the top and the devil's offering him stuff. And Jesus is like, why would I believe you? You're a king of liars. So, and then she says, oh, like no pink dragons and stuff. Now rule three, no disappearing. Rule four, no cheating. That's what, that's what uh, uh, Merlin chimes in. He says, rule four, no cheating. It's like, all right, all right. Now, and then they pace off and then they start counting. One, two, three, four. Now pace off to 10. So they start pacing off. And Mad Madam Mim goes one, two, three, four, and on four she disappears. And Wart on the side's like Merlin, she disappeared. And it's like ah, oh, damn it, Mad Madam Mim. Now you made the rules. Like why, you know, why would he trust her? Of course. Now pace off to ten, and she, Mad Madam Mim counts to four. She's supposed to count to ten. She counts to four, and she disappears. Do you know what one plus two plus three plus four is? It's ten. So in other words, she wasn't actually lying here. She did, quote unquote, count to 10. She just triangulated it. 
One plus two plus three plus four equals ten, and she disappears. Well, of course, what's the first thing that she becomes? A pink dragon, right? Or I guess this is, you know, it's a this is a crocodile or whatever, but it's, you know, it's like very sort of dragon-esque, whatever. Becomes the crocodile, right? And of course they go under their wizard's duel, the crocodile, then becomes a turtle, and then a bunny, and then, you know, what if this like a squirrel, and then you know, a caterpillar, and then a chicken, and then a walrus, and an elephant, and then an elephant, and a mouse, and then a cat, and all this other stuff, right? And then at the very end, this um oh I, I missed one, right? I missed one. Oh, the yeah, oh I'm sorry, I missed one there. This is uh the wizard duel. This is where it comes a snake. And then he becomes the, the, the uh, I mean, a lot of these, by the way, are references to constellations. I'm not going to get into that, though. But um, it's, of course, a crab, cancer, snake, that sort of thing. The rhinoceros, the single horn. And then, of course, the goat and the goat, you know, that sort of thing. It's so funny because he they call him a goat, like a devil and that sort of thing. And then how he pushes her, Madam Mim, off the cliff is he becomes a ram or a goat, which is hilarious. So then... Um, Oh, yep, sorry, there's the wizard's duel then. Then all of a sudden pushes her off into this, and then all of a sudden, boom, Mad Madam Mim becomes what? The purple or pink dragon, right? And then um and then almost gets him, like poof, he becomes a mouse and runs away. And then Mad Madam Mim grabs him and he's like, Oh, I've got you, I got you, I win, I win. And Merlin's up there, or, I mean, excuse me, Arthur's up there, he's like, Oh, you're no good, evil, blah 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 blah, right? Well, how does Merlin beat the dragon? Gives it a virus. It's a germ. That's how he wins. This was in 1963. Think about it. Madam, I have not disappeared. I am very tiny. I'm a germ, a rare disease. And you caught me, ma'am. What? First you break out into spots, followed by hot and cold flashes, then violent sneezing, huh? Watch it, boy. Oh, 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 oh. You, you sneaky scoundrel. Oh, it's not too serious, madam. Ah, you should recover in a few weeks and be as good as, uh, uh, I mean, as bad as ever. But uh, I would suggest plenty of rest and lots and lots of sunshine. <laughs> Do you know what also, you know what also a character that has a large nose that hates sunshine is? You know, you know, vampire, right? So, uh, then it, then they storm off and it's like, oh man, Merlin, you could have been killed. You were really great, Merlin, but but you could have been killed. It was worth it, he says. Lad, it was worth it if you learned something from it. Right? If you take on the adventure, right, and that sort of thing, if you learn from it something, you take it away, then boom, it was worth it. Knowledge and wisdom is the real power, he says again. Right, you are, Wart, so stick to your schooling, boy. Oh, oh, I, I don't worry. I, I, sir, I really will. I will. Then the next scene is the tournament at Christmas, right? You see, you see the obviously it's a you know New Year's Christmas time that sort of thing. You see the castle and it's in winter and that tournament is here and boom, this is going to be to you know see who's who's king and there's so Pelinor's there and Sir you know the father's there and you can see um, Arthur is off to the side. He's not part of the big feast. They're not celebrating Arthur at all. He's just a little runt still. They don't care about him. And here's to Kay victory. Here's here's to victory for Kay. Kay will be the king of England. Right? And then Pelinor says this. Pelinor says, Kay the king? What a dreadful thought. Like even he, he's like celebrating. He's like, yes, we're going to have a new king and stuff like that. And then he thinks about it. He's like, oh no, Kay's an idiot. Right? Then, turns out that this person comes in and is like, Hobbes, the person that's going to be Kay's squire, Hobbes, has the mumps. Right? And so, 
Arthur's all excited. He's like, I'm going to be K-Squire, right? And this is what, so then he goes up to Merlin. He runs up the steps and he tells Merlin, he's like, Merlin, guess what, man? I'm going to be K-Squire again. And this is what Merlin says. So the globe is in the scene and he says this, Merlin, look, I'm a squire, huh? Oh, very nice boy. Yes, indeed. A fine monkey suit for polishing boots. It's a monkey suit. It's, it's what all the squires wear. And I thought you were going to amount to something. It's a monkey suit, right? A monkey suit is, of course, they, they talk about a monkey suit being like a, a, a you know, a, oh, what am I saying? Tuxedo and that sort of stuff. But of course, what's what, what's the underhanding thing here? It, it, he's basically saying, I was like, ah, oh, evolution in this sense. Ah, uh, you're, you're, you're being a monkey right now. No, 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 you're a king, Arthur. And you're acting like a monkey. Is what he's saying. Then he says this. I thought you had a few brains. And as he says, I thought you had a few, I thought you had a few brains. What does he do? Kicks over the globe. Watch it. It's hilarious. He's all pissed off. He's like, I thought you had a few brains. Boom. There goes the globe. Once again, that's what I'm saying. Subtly, I think that that uh, Walt Disney would have been actually leaving a lot of messages in his, in you know, um, uh, this isn't like what I'm saying is, but Walt Disney may have may not have been a dark magician kind of thing. I don't know. Um, and then he says, "Blow me to Bermuda, blow me to Bermuda." He says, right? And then there's, and then this is what happens. Then the arc of him going to Bermuda looks like a rocket going out that literally lands in the sea. <laughs> See that? I don't know. Maybe just a quinkadink is what it is. It's just a quinky dink, right? But he's pissed off. He's like, oh, you, you've settled to be a squire. No, you're supposed to be king. I'm out of here. He goes to Bermuda. When he comes back from Bermuda, what does he say? Place sucks. The new age, the new age that we're living in sucks. So the tournament begins, right? Snowy. It's New Year's. It's a reference to Christmas, guys, right? Where a, a, a new king will be born in this sense, right? Um, what is this? Okay, so then the tournament starts, and then boom, what you see, you see um, black and white going after one another. There, the, this is the representative, this is a representation of the internal opposites warring with one another, as opposed to harmonizing, the black and white merging and balancing and harmonizing. So this is the tournament, and they're all fighting because they want the power, they want the prestige, they want to be king of England, they want to be able to tell everybody what to do, right? And then, of course, Kay is like, or uh, Arthur's like, oh, the sword, the sword, I forgot the sword. And then Kay's like, oh, you little wart, you forgot my sword, you better never come back without a sword, that sort of thing, right? So he runs off with Archimedes, and he runs to the inn. He runs to the inn, he's like, oh, I'll get the sword. And then he goes to the inn, and it's locked, because everybody's at the tournament. Look at the sign in the inn. It's a pig. It's a swine. That's not, no, that's not where, that's not where Arthur goes. Arthur doesn't go feed with the swine and the pig. He's about to be king. He's going to go right to the churchyard and pull the sword from the stone. And he's like, look, boy, they're in the churchyard. Of course, that's where the stone is. It's a, it's a reference, or that's where the, the sword is. It's a reference to, of course, spirituality. This whole thing is. So Arthur runs and grabs the sword. Like, yes. Right? And he's like, oh, look out, boy. That's what he says. That's what Archimedes says. Look out, boy, when he goes to try to grab it because all of a sudden the light comes down and that sort of thing. And this is what he says. He's like, look out. That's what Archimedes says. He's like, a sword. Oh, Archimedes, a sword. Oh, you're going to have a tough time pulling it out. 
Ah, oh, watch it, boy. You better leave it alone. Then, this is what Arthur says, But Kay's got to have a sword. Why did he pull the sword from the stone? It literally had nothing to do with anything personally with him. He didn't do it for prestige or power. He didn't do it because he's like, I'm going to be king of England. That's why. No. He took all of his might, all of his care, and he wanted. He pulled that sword for somebody else. That's why God allowed him to pull the sword from the stone. He didn't live for himself. He lived for others. So what is the sword and what is the stone? All right, now we're going to get pretty heady esoteric stuff here, the stuff we've covered before, but we already know what the sword is. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The sword is the sword of the Spirit. You are on a you're on the cross of matter in this sense, right? And you have a spirit within you. And that spirit you want to release from your physical vessel and get up to heaven. Okay? So we already know that the sword is the Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit. Okay? So he's talking about his spirit within him. And he's going to pull that spirit from the stone. What is the stone? Well, we already covered what the stone is. This is the process of alchemy. It's celebrated in Freemasonry too. It's the, it's the process of turning the rough ashlar into the perfect ashlar. It's the process of turning the lead into gold. It's the process of turning a wart into a king. The stone is, in this sense, you, your, your physical body. And this, the, the sword is the sword of the spirit. Okay? This is also a reference to the philosopher's stone. The Almighty, all one, wise, and omniscient, omniscient God and Lord hath given every, have given understanding to man above all other creatures. He's given understanding to man so that he may know his works and not leave them unexplored. Now, since this man whom the all-wise God hath inspired thereto hath this high and profound secret work and the great secret of the ancient water stone of the wise, he must prove himself aright. If ever there is a natural thing on earth, it is the preparation of the magisterium of the philosopher's stone, natural and not of man's making, God's making, but wholly the work of nature, for the artist adds nothing thereto. The Philosopher's Stone in alchemy is recognized as the cube. It's recognized as the cube. The early Rosicrucians, just as you saw the, the rough ashlar and the perfect ashlar stone, the perfect ashlar stone, when you go through that work of alchemy, is to perfect that vessel so that the spirit may be released from it. So you take the rough ashlar stone and you make it a perfect ashlar stone. The perfect cube. The early Rosicrucians said that the stone of the philosophers is to be found everywhere. Yet it is fully unknown. It is both noblest and lowest, lowliest, mineral and not mineral. It has a special relationship to fire, Rudolf Steiner says. The Philosopher's Stone is present everywhere, under men's feet, in the heavens, on the water, and on the hillsides. As you can see, this comes from Michael Mayer's Atlanta Fugian, 1618. You can see what is what is everywhere around him. It's up in the, it's in the clouds and in the water and the feet below him and on the hillside. And it's the cube. It's the cube. The stone of the foundation, according to the Masons, the stone of foundation is said for peculiar reasons to have been of a cubical form. It's the cube. Must be confounded with that stone called by the Continental Masons as the cubical stone. Must it, must it be confounded with, I'm sorry, the Pierre Cubic of the French and the Cubic Stein of the German Masons. In English system, it's known as the perfect ashlar. It's a perfect cube. The Holy of Holies, this was a place in... Um, 
in Ger I think with Germany that we visited and we went to the uh, this cathedral and the Holy of Holies and what was in the Holy of Holies well, it was a cube it was a cube a large cube in the Holy of Holies we go to Revelation and we find out we found out we find out that um, God's city is a cube it's a cube and the city lieth four square it's a square and the length and the breadth is the equal and he measured the length and the breadth, the height of it are all equal. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs, according to the measure of a man. Of course, we have the Teflon cube. Pulled the sword from the stone, the philosopher's stone. He pulled the spirit from the cube. The Teflon cube, this is, uh, of course, uh, Judaism. They wear one right here, but essentially on the third eye, another one on the arm. They wrap it around seven times. Seven, of course. Um, it's the Teflon. So, um, Jewish Kabbalah, uh, in Judaism, the cube is central. How about the Kaaba? How about the Kaaba? How about this? That, you know, Muslims, they make their pilgrimage to Kaaba. The big cube in Mecca, once in their lifetime, they're supposed to. Here's the cube of alchemy. Of course, what's at the bottom? On earth, the earthen vessel, which is the cube, which is representative of you. Okay. Merging the man and woman the sun and the moon of course the cube forms a cross we all know this the cube forms the cross isn't that fun Bloop. nice perfect huh and then of course what is the cube it's the six directions of space up down left right forward and reverse it's how you navigate through this world so we just covered in matthew the book of matthew we talked about how you actually find you know, alchemical ideas within the, Jesus's words. At the bottom there, you see the corpus. You see that? There's the the trinity, the triangle right there. And at the bottom, there's a corpus. Corpus means body. And what is it? It's a cube. It's your body. You're pulling the spirit from the cube of the body. Here's salt, sulfur, and mercury. Salt is known as a cube. And it's also given the distinction of pi, the geometry of pi. Hebrew Bible depicted a three-part world, the heavens, the earth, and the underworld, and that's represented in in um, in alchemy as the tria prima: mercury, salt, and sulfur. Salt is cubic. Salt is cubic. What is the structure of salt? It's a cube. It's a stone. That's why ye are the salt of the earth, but the salt has lost its savor. Wherewith shall it be salted? What is he referencing? It's the cube. So, the hero king, King Arthur, he pulled, released the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, from the physical body of the stone cube. He pulled the sword of the spirit from the stone, from the cube. Why did he do it? How did he do it? This is one of the comments and below. It said um, in one of the videos, it said, He will seek the sword with a humble heart and not for himself alone. He took the sword because Cain needed one, not for his own glory. Nothing of what Arthur did was for his own glory, so that he could make money, so that he could be famous, so that he could be king of England. Nothing. At no point did he ever do anything in this sense for himself. He was always doing things for other people. His heart, his humbled heart, cared for the entire world around him. He had an active imagination. He had passion. He had gusto. He was ready for adventure. 
But all all of that said, why did he? Why did God say you're going to pull the sword from the stone? Because he had compassion for humanity. He didn't live for himself. He lived for others, and God saw that and said, "You're worthy." All these other warriors, they're not warriors. They're a bunch of wussy ass men, you know, cuck men or toxic men or whatever. They're not real men. You're a real man, wart. Why? Because he has a heart. Listen, Arthur pulls the sword of the spear from the stone and he runs doesn't even think about it, runs to give it to Kay. And Kay, what did Kay say, right? Yeah, you know, what am I as, you know, as like, uh, is, am I his keeper? Kay looks at it, and what does he say? This isn't my sword. This spirit's too beautiful. It's too perfect. Certainly not mine. I'm a doofus, and I don't give a shit about anybody, and all I do, all I do is want to be king of England so I can have power. This is not my sword. Yeah, we know, right? Hold on, Kay. And then he says, Hold on. My my God, it's the sword from the stone. Hold everything. Someone's pulled the sword from the stone. Right? <laughs> and all of a sudden, So Arthur runs up and you know shows him this is like, oh, here, here's a sword. Where'd you get it, boy? That's what he says. Oh, I went to the churchyard and it was just in there and I just went and pulled it. <laughs> You're making a fool of us. And everybody starts laughing. Ah, ha, ha, ha. That little wimp, that little wuss. He's not a man. He can't put, he's not a warrior like us. You can't pull the sword from the stone. So then what do they do? They go back. And they say, grabs him, right? Almost like an animal or something. He's like, prove it. You know, this is, they're just about to see that this guy is about to be king. Divinely, right? Divinely crowned as king. So, pull it. Pull it, prove it. Pull the sword from the stone. Puts it back in. He's like, yeah, let's see it. And then, of course, Kay runs up and he's like, well, anybody's, you know, anyone can pull it once it's been pulled, right? And so then he tries like, oh, can't do it, right? And then this is what happens. That's not fair. I say we let the boy try it. That's what I say. Give the boy a chance. Go ahead, son. It's a miracle, ordained by heaven. This boy is our king. <clears throat> so, pulls the sword from the stone, and what happens right before that? Let's play this again. Watch this. That's not fair. I say we let the boy try it. That's what I say. Give the boy a chance. Go ahead, sir. It's a miracle, ordained by heaven. 
This boy is our king. You see that? So on the left side there, you had Pelinor going, going and saying like, I say we let the boy give it a try. Right? And then on the right, what do you have? This uber, like, tall masculine man saying, that's right, I say we let the boy give it a try. Watch it. Extremely feminine, wearing, like, pink and purple, and he's all, like, dainty like this. Pelinor's like, I say we let the boy give it a try. And on the right is a big, burly-ass man saying, that's right, I say we let the boy give it a try. What's going on? It's the alchemical marriage. Pelinor on the left's being like, ah, I say we let the boy give it a try. And who's on the right? The masculine, yeah. Well, neither one of those guys pulled the sword from the stone, did they? No, Arthur did. And this, he's being flanked by them. This is exactly what we're saying when we talk about the alchemical wedding and the alchemical marriage. Arthur embodies both of these things in this sense, right? You know, metaphorically speaking. Anyway. I say we let the boy give it a try. Yeah, that's right. Let the boy give it a try. <laughs> Feminine? Masculine? Who's in the middle? Who's... Arthur is representing the what? The merging of those opposites. The coincidentia positorum, the unity of opposites. And that's why he becomes king. Because God's like, oh, you've perfected it. And why? Well, you purified your heart. You did things for everybody else except yourself and you had a full heart doing it. You never even complained. In fact, when he said, hey, you want to go? Merlin goes, Merlin's like, hey, you want to go on an adventure? He's like, well, I got a lot of demerits. I got work to do. What you're looking at there is when he pulled the sword from the stone again, right? That is the coincidentia oppositorum. Unity of opposites. Then, of course, what? His father says, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, boy. Right? And he's like, hey, bow to your king. <laughs> right? So now who's, who's learning their lessons now, right? They lived a life of literally having divinity around them they're in you know however long that they've been you know however long he's been an orphan you know raised the boy divinity was around them the entire time and they never they never paid it any mind and now look at him oh i'm so sorry so the king is crowned long live the king hail king arthur long live the king right and then, of, of course, King Arthur goes into the big castle, and what he's like, oh, I don't know, man. I'm, you know, it's like, I, I'm not, I'm not fit to be a king, and la la la, right? That sort of thing. And so he's in the castle, and notice the big giant doors. We just talked about that a few live streams ago. Big doors for the big giant people, and then little doors for people like us, because that's most assuredly who built those cathedrals. This big ass giant people that made big doors like that. Anyway, so once again, subtle references to all this stuff. Okay. So before we finish off there, more yet. Okay. Now, this is kind of, um, it's not really in the film directly, but one of the things that is mentioned, and this will come back. So we've got, a, the he's been king, he's been crowned now. King Arthur has been crowned. He's king. Okay. So now King Arthur had a famous horse. In fact, two famous horses, but one usually that he rode, of course. But Lamarie and Hanegran are a pair of horses owned by King Arthur, according to the Welsh tale of Colquick and Olwen or whatever, composed in the early 12th century, is considered the earliest Arthurian tale, right? So basically, just as most, you know, uh, little kings and legends and stuff like that, they arrive on a white horse, right? There's a big white horse. And notice, once again, 
earlier, Arthur was saying, is like, oh, I always dreamed of being on a great white charger. A great white horse, he says. This is Pegasus. This is the constellation Pegasus, which is right near Cetus, the whale. Okay? So there's Pegasus, and Pegasus is a is, is a prominent constellation in the northern sky named after a winged horse in Greek mythology. Okay? Now, there's tons of hero figures that ride a white horse, like Jesus rides a white horse, and Muhammad rides a white horse, and Odin rides the, what is it, the Mjolnir? No, that's not, no, I forget what the name of the, no, that's the, that's not it. But anyway, I, forget, I always forget the name of the horse that he rides. Anyway, that horse has got like eight legs, sometimes considered even white or light gray, right? Muhammad, Jesus, uh, next thing you know, of course, King Arthur rides a white horse, right? And that's what you see. So, now the, uh, above Pegasus, right there, that white horse is a crown. is a uh, is a crown of stars. It's called the circlet, and so you can see this is Revelation at the top. Behold, a white horse, right? He's wear wears many crowns. Of course, King Arthur was just crowned. Okay, royal crown ornament for the head as a symbol of sovereignty. Corona crown originally wreath garland. He's crowned. So above above the constellation Pegasus is this asterism. It's a group of stars that's part of Pisces, and it's and it's the it's the western fish. Of course, Pisces is the two fish. So right above Pegasus is one of the fish of Pisces, and this circlet of stars, this circle of stars, is called the crown. It's a ring of seven stars, is also sometimes called the circlet, and it is a crown, okay? And it's from the western fish of Pisces. Pay attention. Pegasus horse. Above this horse is the fish of Pisces. And that fish is given the t title of a crown or a circlet of stars. This is the, it's called the square of Pegasus. It's a big asterism. It's part of the horse of Pegasus. It's called the square of Pegasus. And right above the square of Pegasus is the circlet crown. So Arthur was famous for riding a white white horse. There's two horses. There's a horse right by Pegasus called Equilus, which is the other constellation, the two horses, if you will. Okay. So riding a big white flying Pegasus horse. The main asterism of Pegasus is a square, and right above that, Pegasus, literally as if he was riding the horse, as you can see there, is a crown, a circle, a round table, a table of a square, and a round circlet of stars. And that circlet is the crown. He was crowned king. He squared the circle. He squared the circle. He circled the, he circled the square. He round the table, is what he did. Now... The Arthurian legends, the Fisher King, <laughs> it's Pisces, it's a crown of circles, it's a fish, and it's a crown, and it's crowning Arthur in this sense, right? It's a circled square, and it's a fish that is a crown of a Anyway, the Fisher King, <laughs> the Fisher King is a figure in Arthurian legends, the last in a long line of British kings tasked with guarding the Holy Grail. The Fisher King is both the protector and physical embodiment of his lands, but etc. Uh, etc. Et he's unable to walk or ride a horse. He is he is unable to he can't ride the horse because he's just the circle. He's the Fisher King, King which wears a crown, and that's exactly what that circlet is, and it's part of the Fish of Pisces. So what does the Fisher King mean? Here you go. 
the he so basically he's depicted as a wound in the groin, legs, and thigh. The groin, the legs, and thigh he doesn't have any legs to ride Pegasus, the horse. The healing of these wounds always depends on the completion of the hero knight's task. The healing of these wounds. In other words, once that, we've got a circle and a square right there. This is your, once again, the circle and the square. The round table. He was crowned. And this, once again, the round table, this is a reference to <laughs> the metaphysical and the physical. The heaven and the earth. He merged all into one. Okay, so this is the end now. So now that you got that, right? Circle, square, all day long. Squaring the circle, round table. This is the end of the film. I'm in an awful pickle. I'm king. Ooh, he pulled a sword from the stone. Ha-ha! Of course, of course. King Arthur and his knights of the round table. Round table? Oh, uh, would you rather have a square one? Oh, no. Round will be fine. <laughs> boy, boy, boy. You'll become a great legend. They'll be writing books about you for centuries to come. Why, they might even make a motion picture about you. Motion picture? Oh. <laughs> uh, well, um, uh, that's something like television. <laughs> Without commercials. Ah, yes, of course. King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Round Table? Well, you could have a square one if you want one. <laughs> so, literally one of the last lines of the film. Subtle reference to what? Squaring the circle. What does Pegasus do? A square and a circle. Okay, so now... He pulls the sword from the stone. Now, the sword is known in Arthurian legends as the Excalibur, as the legendary sword of King Arthur, sometimes attributed with magical powers, um, associated with the right full sovereignty of Britain. So he pulls this Excalibur sword from the stone. Now, a, many people know that the sword is, is it was the same like form or you know basically symbol of the cross, right? Um, of course, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And where did Jesus die? And, you know, on the cross, of course, right? So the sword of the, the sword of the spirit is recognized in this sense as the cross of matter. Your spirit is in your body on your cross of matter. Okay. So the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, as we know, this is, a, once again, another um, a theme that you see again and again and again. And this is this flaming sword, this sword of great power, sort of spirit. That's when you say flaming or fire or lit or white or bright. It's spirit. It's that sort of thing. This is Genesis. He drove out the man and he placed the east at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims in a flaming sword. It was a great flaming sword, right? Now, this flaming this flaming sword, this... this um, cross, if you will, is recognized in the constellation Cygnus, which is one of a very bright constellation in the sky. It's very noticeable um, in the northern hemisphere, in the northern regions. Um, it's a very big, and it's it's basically a big bird. It's Cygnus, right? It's Cygnet is a young swan. So this, and I'll show you in just a second, right? And Cygnet means to be white, to lighten, to glow, light, clear, 
right? Light, glow, to be white, light, fire, right? In this sense, it's a glowing, big glowing cross is what it is, what Cygnus is. And I'll show you in this in just a second. So this will relate to the constellations back again. So here's some images, once again, of the flaming cross, the flaming sword. This flaming sword is, or the sword of the spirit is all over like legends all over the world. According to the Bible, a flaming sword is the cherubim. The flame of the whirling sword was entrusted to the cherubim, right? To guard the gates of paradise in this sort of sense. The flaming sword is in North myth Norse mythology. Giant Suture had a flaming sword. The Dimwin or whatever is the, this is the Welsh, um, is a triad. Um, is said to have a powerful sword. When, you know, the entire blade would blaze with fire. The flaming sword. Flaming swords have been existed in legends and myths for thousands of years. Um, a, a, a kela is what it is. I think a Japanese uh, Buddhist art holding, uh, excuse me, Buddhist art showing, you know, once again, a sword, treasure sword. Uh, once the piranhas, there's swords all over, right? So this is the sword, which is, once again, the sword, which is in the form of a cross, right? This is the Northern Cross, See the pole star in the center. This is the constellation Cygnus. Cygnet means light, flame, fire, whiten, to glow, that sort of thing, right? And that is in the shape of a sword. This will all make sense in just a second. That, in the, in the center there in Polaris, right, you have, um, right by Polaris there is that big, of course, that's where the mountain was. There's, you know, Sapius and Cassiopeia. There's Draco right there, but there's Cygnus, right? And Cygnus is known as the Northern Cross, very recognizable constellation in the sky, another asterism, is considered one of the most recognizable constellations in the night sky. And it was, it was a bird. It's a big bird. And it's also known as the Northern Cross, right? So keep that in mind. Now, there's another, there's another uh, constellation right by that called Hercules. Hercules is a hero figure. Heracles, Hercules, the same sort of figure. He's a hero figure. One of the main asterisms of Hercules is four relatively bright stars in the torso of this hero figure. And this four bright stars are known as the keystone. The keystone. The asterisms represent Hercules' torso. So it's a stone. So there's a northern cross that represents a sword. And as we'll see right by that cross, right near that cross is a... Oh, excuse me. Yeah, right near that cross is a stone, a keystone. Once again, this will all make sense in just a second. Hercules, there's your hero figure, right? That's the center of his body is a keystone. Okay? So, now, when we say that we have a spiritual component, like, oh, he pulled the sword from the stone. He pulled the sword of the spirit from the stone, the cubic stone of his body, the material body. He pulled the spirit from it so that what? He could be released and go up into heaven and re reunite with God. Okay? So he pulled the sword, the cross, the sword, the sword of the spirit. Right there you have Cygnus, which is a northern cross, which is a cross or a sword. Right by that Cygnus right there, right there is Hercules. And right there you have a a stone. It's literally one of the largest asterisms in the sky, and it's pretty, pretty noticeable. It's called the keystone. So you have a northern cross, which is a sword, and that's a big bird called Cygnus. It's a swan, Cygnus a bird. And there's Hercules, which is the big keystone. Right next to those two is what? Arthur, the bear. 
Arthur means bear, right? Once again. And what is the one of the most noticeable constellations, noticeable asterisms in the sky? Ursa Major. The big bear, the big dipper, the big ladle, the big trough. It's Ursa Major. Ursa Major, the two stars in Ursa Major point to the Polaris. The center of the entire thing. So you have Arthur, the bear, who pulled, became king because what? He pulled the sword from the stone. He, he was, now he has the round table. He circled the square. He squared the circle. And he removed his spirit from the stone of his body, in this sense, and released it so that he could rise to heaven. And then when you get to the heavens, the story's up there, too. Because Arthur, the bear, who's revolving around that pole star right there, right? And pointing to the pole star, those two stars going right to the pole star. What is he right by? He's by the Northern Cross, which is a what? In the shape of a sword, which is right by what? One of the biggest asterisms in the sky, the keystone. He pulled the sword from the stone, Arthur did, and he squared the circle and he became king. The flaming sword that points the way to paradise is that big bird up in the sky right there. It's a northern cross. He pulled the sword, the Cygnus, the northern cross, from the keystone of Hercules. And he achieved immortality. So wait a second, wait a second. Marty, if you... If, if I'm getting you right, if I'm hearing this right, what you're telling me is that Cygnus, that northern cross, which is a big bird... That's representative of the sword of the spirit, and the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Marty, if what you're saying is correct, then what? You know what? Let's let uh, let's let our piano guy, Foundering, uh, solve this riddle for us. Why don't we? <laughs> Well, everybody dance about the bird. Bird, bird, bird. The bird, bird, bird. The bird, bird, bird. The bird, bird, bird. The bird, Once again, if you're not a fan of Foundering, please consult your uh, physician. You may need a booster. But yes, that's right. Mr. Foundering said it correctly. The bird, Cygnus, the Northern Cross, is the word. <laughs> sort of the spirit, which is the word of God. So what did, what did young author do? He pulled the sword from the stone. He squared the circle. That's what he did. He merged all opposites into one and recognized where it comes from, and that's God Almighty. And how did he do it? Through care, passion, imagination, his heart, not living for himself and himself only. He didn't care about power or prestige or money. He didn't care about any of it. All he wanted was what? To live passionately. So, 
a lot of lessons, a lot of lessons from A Sword in the Stone. And I hope you all enjoyed that. I just want you guys to know that you guys are all good bites, okay? I really appreciate everybody that stops by and spends this much time uh, with something like this. I really appreciate it. You guys are good, good bites, okay? So um, if you want to become a good bird, you can become a good bird over at Subscribe Star. And we have many tiers of birds. We've got the Phoenix bird. We've got the Aquila bird. We've got the Cygnus bird. You can become a Cygnus bird. Or you can be the grandest bird of them all. You can be the Tom and the Pima bird. Okay? So if you do want to support the fine work that we do here over at the Gnostic Church and Academy of Lord Jesus Christ, stop on over. And there's many portals in which you can um, support the church. So... Thank you all very, very much. We, as you guys know, we are a tiny church. You know, there's not, <laughs> there's not that many people that actually watch. Probably maybe 400 or some people that actually watch these things in their entirety. So to all of you, three, four, 500 people, whoever it is, God bless you. I really appreciate it. I really do. I often feel like, um, you know that movie, maybe you don't, but you know, uh, the movie Fish, um, uh, Bittersweet Motel. And it's basically talking about how... Um, <clears throat> Trey Anastasio, this is like before Fish got really big, is like they were doing these huge tours and like they were having a ball, just having a blast and like no one was paying attention, right? And that's kind of how I feel right now. So it's like this is... We're basically off, completely off the radar. We're not in the media. When, when, when you know, Rolling Stone prints up there, uh, who's on tour list, we're not in it, of no, course. No one cares you know? Gnostic tour. So we're just like completely, no one's paying any attention. And we're having like the best tour we've had in years. <laughs> That's about it. No one's paying any attention to this, and we're having a ball. We're having a blast. So thank you to all the people that do have a blast with us. If you would like to support the work, Venmo, buy me a coffee, cash app, you can become a subscribe star. Of course, we really appreciate it. And um, if you'd like to send any donations or letters or anything like that, snail mail, may uh, make checks payable to You Can Read. N17178 Country Pride Drive, Pembine, Wisconsin, 54156. Yes, my name is Kevin McNally. It is not Marty Leeds. That is a pseudonym. Don't worry, I'm not part of the Illuminati. Mark Twain wasn't Mark Twain either. He was Samuel Longhorn Clemens. That doesn't mean he's, you know, trying to pull one over on you. Thanks to Content Safe uh, for getting us on BitChute, Rumble, and Odyssey. And we are always streaming to YouTube, Rockfin, and, and Odyssey. And you can also get this at the Flat Earth, Sun, Moon, and Zodiac app. That's right. The Sunday sermons are on there. You can get the app, and that would be great. Okay. Guys, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate everybody that stops by. We will have a ball next week, and I will see you then. Okay. Um, may you always keep yourself. May you always keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, unto eternal life. May His grace be with you all. Amen. Okay, that's gonna do it for me. Cause you guys are good bards. We're gonna exit this baby with some uh speaking of fish we're gonna play a, a song by uh the band fish and it is called birds of a feather because birds of a feather flock together but you know what birds of a feather also rock together so that's us so thank you guys for being good birds we appreciate you and we will see you on the flip side all right that's gonna do it for me as always many blessings and much love to all
They bottle inside, they peck at the ground, and they strut out of stride. 